Welcome to MGO Podcast 14.8. As is tradition, it's the bye week, so we're going to talk some basketball. Hooray. Folks, it is the bye week, so you know what that means. It means lots and lots of shots at Michigan State. But also our basketball preview. We'd like to welcome in Matt D of EndlessMotor.com. How you doing, Matt? Good. How about you guys? And, of course, we have Seth here, as always. Uh, before we get started, we would like to thank our sponsors. And I will thank you to Underground Printing for making this all possible. Rishi and Ryan have been big, our biggest supporters from the beginning. Check out their wide selection of official licensed Michigan fan gear at their three store locations in Ann Arbor or learn, learn about their custom apparel business at undergroundshirts.com. We'd also like to thank our associate sponsors, Homeshire Lending, Peak Wealth Management, Ann Arbor Elder Law, Michigan Law Grant, Human Element, the Phil Klein Insurance Group, Prentice 4M, where we usually record, The Nosebleeds, which is the Scarlet Brothers' new show on UFC Fight Pass and introducing to the podcast our longtime ticket partners, Ticket IQ. <clears throat> All right. So Michigan basketball faces a transitional year, I guess. I mean, it doesn't feel like that because you have Hunter Dickinson back, but you don't really have a whole lot else uh, in terms of guys who were major contributors a year ago. Michigan, for the third straight year, will be relying on a transfer at point guard, and that's where we'll start with Jalen Llewellyn out of Princeton. Um, so as opposed to Michigan's previous point guard transfers Llewellyn was actually a top 100 recruit he's six foot two so you're hoping that he's going to have a little bit more size and athleticism than either Mike Smith or uh Devontae Jones yeah so I think the first thing you want to look at and Brian hit on it a bit is the recruiting pedigree right we're not talking about enough transfer from the Ivy League or somebody that's necessarily going to struggle from a from a physical perspective this is a guy with legit you know big 10 starting caliber size uh there's some pull-up game there. There's some there's some playmaking chops. I uh, you know I'm inclined to think that he will be the best of the bunch in terms of the uh, the three transfer point guards. I'm pretty optimistic that a Llewellyn Hunter Dickinson ball screen combo is is pretty potent in in conference play. One of the main concerns with Llewellyn is because Frankie Collins transferred to Arizona State. He's pretty much locked in as the starting point guard guy who only had a 13 assist rate a year ago. So he's played as more of a combo than a true point. And, you know, Devontae Jones had a similar season before he came to Michigan from Coastal, but at the year before that at Coastal, he had a huge assist rate. So obviously this is a thing that is often context-dependent on who's on your team and who's carrying the ball and all that stuff. Have you seen enough from Llewellyn to think that he's going to be able to slot in and have that 25 assist rate, that 30 assist rate? I wouldn't necessarily expect him to have a 25 to 30 assist rate, but what I would say for normal circumstances, I, I do agree. You it could be potentially music. a concern, but when you have a big with the playmaking ability of Hunter Dickinson, it's sort of mitigated because in a sure. lot of ways in a half court offense, he kind of is your point guard, right? Because what you're looking for is that gravity, a guy that can collapse the defense, generate open shots. Now, do we really care if that comes from the point guard or whether it comes from Dickinson? Uh, I don't know. It's up for debate. But in, in any event, it makes me feel better that, that we have a guy in Dickinson that, that can make those decisions and he can create shots for others and just make the game easier. And his three-point shooting had a major uptick last year from 31 to 
And as you mentioned, pull-up game is part of that. Only about 64% of his threes were assisted. So there's a significant off-the-bounce ability there that neither of Michigan's previous point guard transfers really had. Yeah, and I think that's something that cannot be underestimated, right? For as good as Devontae Jones was as a finisher for a smaller guard, and make no mistake, he was he was superb at that. He had an array of flow orders. He had a good body control. But, you know, it does hinder the offense to a certain extent when you're able to go under ball screens and, and you're able to play drop coverage with well, and I don't think that's going to be the case. At minimum, he's a respectable pull-up guy. And, you know, if you're going to go under, he's going to be able to punish that to the point where it's going to make you change your coverage. And when that happens, that's going to open up a lot of things. So I'm really excited to see what a pull-up shooter with with positional size looks like. Another encouraging thing is that Princeton's offense last year was excellent. They were in the top 30 in Ken Palm. And Llewellyn was the second heaviest usage guy on that team behind uh, a guy who I'm not even going to try to pronounce his name. (laughs) (laughs) Tosan Evbuoman. That's that's what I got. So he's a guy who's been a a major piece of a very good offense. And I think that speaks to this being less of a risk in terms of projectability and an up transfer. I I think this is more when you talk about recruiting pedigree and and the aforementioned, you know, offensive prowess of the the Princeton team last year. This this looks more like a a lateral move in terms of competition level than than an up transfer, which, which has to give you a certain level of comfort. Yeah, for what it's worth, they played Minnesota last year, lost in two overtimes. Uh, Llewellyn put up 13 on uh, 23 shooting possessions. One wasn't his best night, but was clearly uh, not limited in terms of usage against a a Big Ten team. So a guy who should slot in fairly well. And and given, given what we saw last year, though, one of the most important questions I think about the backcourt is, are they going to be able to contest pull-ups? Because I remember going into Synergy midseason last year and seeing Michigan was like one one percentile, the first percentile in defending shots off the bounds and and short jumpers and that kind of thing. And that kind of went back to the fact that they didn't have guys with a lot of vertical or a lot of length in the guard positions. Yeah, no, I think that's a it's a pretty big upgrade in terms of just the size and the the, the positional length that, that Llewellyn brings. I mean, I don't know what what Jones and Mike Smith were listed at, but I, I'd be willing to venture that that Llewellyn's at least plus three in the height department, probably plus you know three or four in, in the length department. And like you say, it, it just gives you some wiggle room in terms of you don't always have to stay attached to the guy's chest. Like you, you can play less aggressive coverages and he has sort of that recovery length to get up a contest and, and make a, make an impact there. And, and maybe we go from, I don't know, what were the final numbers, 10, seventh percentile or whatever the case may be to somewhere around the median outcome, which would be a lot because, you know, a lot of times last year in terms of defending team actions, we were great, but when it came to, you know, let's just go get a bucket. We were, <laughs> we were a really substandard defensive team because even against like Nebraska, like that was, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was just tough. Like we just didn't, it was just tough to defend late clock offense because Guy, they were just bigger than us, and they could just shoot over us at any at any given point. And I think that that helps out a lot in terms of defending those type of possessions when things break down. Yeah, it really puts a high floor on opponent possessions, which is disappointing because you, as you mentioned, you get down to five seconds on the shot clock, and they still can still get something reasonable off. And it's like, ah, that's no good. Um, moving on to the projected backup, Doug McDaniel, who uh, does not have 
height. <laughs> He's listed at five <laughs> eleven, but that's well, that. Uh, that might be a bit generous. Yeah, bit generous. He's a uh, number eighty-two composite prospect on twenty-four-seven. A guy with a lot of quickness who worked on his pull-up game over the last couple of years and has developed into more of a shooter. Um, and uh, we're getting some reports from inside the program that say that he is. He's not Xavier Simpson defensively, but he's a guy who's locked in and will stay in front of guys. Pest. So I can absolutely confirm in terms of, of the athletic profile. I mean, straight line speed, lateral movement. He's a, a top tier guy at the college level. I don't think there's any question. He is going to be an absolute ball hawk at the point of attack. You know, there's there's obviously going to be some certain some concerns as to whether he'll get bullied occasionally on straight line drives and just walks to the basket, which it, it's going to happen. I mean, it's just a fact of life, but. What I will say is that his ability to extend that ball pressure, it sort of provides relief for the rest of the team because if he can just simply eat up four to five seconds off the opposition's possession, it just goes a long way in terms of deterring penetration and things of that nature. But I think the other thing it allows us to do is that if we need to get more shooting around Dickinson, as you said, Llewellyn is a is a scorer. And, and I can tell you that there's definitely talk within the program that we're going to see lineups of both McDaniel and Llewellyn and that Llewellyn may very well be, you know, slotted off ball in those scenarios. That's how impressed the staff has been with McDaniel early on. Now, I, I said there, there are definitely going to be scenarios where Llewellyn and McDaniel play together. I'm not saying that's going to happen 20 minutes a game or McDaniel is going to play 25 minutes a game, but He's going to be part of the rotation. They believe in his on-ball defensive abilities, and they believe in just his motor and just his his you know his his willingness to compete. You know, there's no soft in him is what what I've heard, and uh, they're definitely enamored with his ability to 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 basically wreak havoc defensively. So, yeah, and uh, there's a site out there called Point Guard Eyes that has a fairly extensive scouting report and some stats from Doug McDaniel. And they did five of his games last year, and he had 18 steals in those games. Yeah, now that's that with the eye test. Absolutely, that's high school, right? So you're always going to get some inflated numbers. And the other other thing that is interesting to me is that that's 36 three point attempts hit uh, 36 percent on those. So that's not a huge sample size, but I think it is indicative of a guy who you can rely on to uh, hit some outside shots, which is a question I think earlier in, in McDaniel's recruitment. My worry is that like they don't have a lot of guards. So McDaniel's going to have to play. So every time I hear, you know, I, I'm not saying this is the case, but it's like, you, you know, you have to look at it from a, a cynic's perspective. They only have three guards. They're not really sure if, you know, we'll get to the number two, but like, could that also mean that like, they're not really comfortable with what they have at the two, um, especially past, you know, Kobe Bufkin. And I don't like, necessarily, I don't necessarily think that you have to play Doug McDaniel. Because, you know, Bufkin is a guy who's a combo guard. And as uh, Matt previously pointed out, there's going to be a lot of games where you can get away with not having a true point on the floor because of Hunter Dickinson. Mm-hmm. So you know, what what I would say to this scenario, and it's kind of playing devil's advocate to both sides. I, I agree with Seth in a vacuum that, you know, you don't necessarily want to rely on a true freshman point guard, particularly when the numbers are thin at, at set positional group. But what I will say is this, is that, in terms of my memory of recent history in the Big Ten, this may very well be, from a conference perspective, the weakest guard <laughs> year that we've ever had. I mean, let's just call it for what it is. I mean, it's 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 a pretty down year in terms of the talent at guard in the Big Ten. 
So you may be able to, to to navigate that a bit better than what you would, let's say, five or six years ago when it was a murderer's row of guards. I mean, every team you looked at just had quality depth at, at the guard position. You know, there's talks this, this year that the all Big Ten team could literally be like four to five bigs. I mean, I've seen that projected. That's I know that that's that's what we're talking about at this point. So I, you know, in a vacuum, I, I would agree with Seth. But but given the context within the conference, you know, and this has to play out. I don't know how much of a concern it is, given the, the the relative lack of talent at that positional group. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that um, you mentioned with Llewellyn that like he's not necessarily a shot creator, and that you know the one thing that really we knew about Doug in high school is that he creates shots, right? He is well, a, he's an assist guy. I don't necessarily think that Llewellyn is not a shot creator. Um, he just hasn't had huge assist numbers, but when you look at his um, shots assisted. Like if he's inside the line, he's generating that shot by himself mm-hmm. at Princeton, and that's probably going to change somewhat at Michigan, just because he'll have more guys around him he can rely on. But he's a guy who I think will be able to get to the bucket at least somewhat in Big Ten play. I'm not relying on him to like be senior no, no, no. Simpson. But I'm he'll more be able saying to that like Doug play. is a um, Doug's a passer and, and and a very good one, and that was like one of the things that. I mean, when I made the joke when they got him, I was like, well, that's because he's got, you know, two guys named Howard on the team. He wants to set them up as well as possible. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't I don't think there's any question that playmaking is Doug's strongest skill attribute, along with the, the point of attack defense. And there's there's obviously going to be growing pains anytime you have a freshman point guard. That's just the way it is. But I think there will be enough flashes there that that we can have optimism moving forward in, in year two and beyond. And, and you know, hopefully he's able to sort of tread water offensively while being a plus in spurts, you know, at the point of attack, particularly against smaller guards. And I think that's the the hope with the, with the coaching staff for this year. All right, moving on to the two where Kobe Bufkin is projected to start. Bufkin was a McDonald's all American and a, a big deal recruit who was kind of uh, at sea as a freshman uh, really needed to add a, a bunch of weight. Apparently has added 15 to 20 pounds of muscle uh, and is hopefully going to make that, Karis Levert, freshman to sophomore leap. Yeah, no, I can confirm that he's up at around 193 right now. Uh, added about 15 to 20 pounds of muscle mass, as you, as you mentioned just now. And uh, I don't think the skill was ever in doubt. I mean, Bufkin's a he was a three level scorer in high school. Played at the highest of levels at the AU on the EYBL circuit. Uh, there's some playmaking prowess there as well. You know, he can run some on ball things. Uh, I don't necessarily think that's how he's going to be utilized this year, but he's seen it. You know, at, at the high school level, but. Yeah, I think when I think some reports just came out today, they sort of surveyed the Michigan team, and, and the, the first guy that was sort of mentioned as a standout performer, you know, during early practice has been Bufkin, and and I can see that, you know, offensively, I don't think there's any question. I think the bigger question for Bufkin is what's he look like defensively, right? Because he's not the biggest guy in terms of sheer mass, and he's not necessarily explosive from agility perspective, so. He's going to have to understand the nuances of the various coverages and, and angles and things of that nature. And if he can survive defensively, I definitely think he's going to be in for, for a breakout year offensively. And the height does come into effect there, too, because, I mean, he's got almost a half foot on Eli Brooks, probably. So he's going to have a little bit more leeway to mess up. Yeah, he doesn't necessarily have to hug up on a ball handler and exert that same sort of pressure, as you say, What's he have five or six inches and probably an additional, you know, six or seven inches of length. So if he can just master the nuances of the various coverages and his positioning and, and, and angles, it'll go a long way because he's not going to be bullied quite as easy as he was last year. Just just 
by virtue of just adding 20 pounds of muscle mass, he should be able to absorb some of that, that contact. But I really look at as Bufkin as a guy, at least when he's fully realized as a, as a, as a, you know, sort of a jack of all trades. He can be a floor spacer. He catches shoot threes, do a bit off the bounce in a way of pull-ups and in a pinch, you know, operate the ball screen offense. So I really like the upside for him offensively. Yeah. I, you know, we, we make the comparison to Karras all the time. And another piece of that puzzle is that he's young for his, uh, for his grade. I think he's just turned 18, maybe like he's, uh, he's the age of most guys when they're freshmen. And some guys are, you know, even still in high school because guys will hold themselves back. So he's got a lot of growth to go. And I mean, you can expect him to take a jump. I'm not saying he's going to be, you know, sophomore Karras this year, but like he probably has more, um, more runway than most guys just because of his age. I'd say the distinction between he and Levert, and I, and I understand why, why people would make that comparison just in terms of the, the body type, is that, you know, Levert, even in high school and even as a freshman, showed much more on-ball shiftiness, able to sort of generate his own shot, whereas I think Bufkin, you know, despite what the percentages said last year, I know he didn't shoot a great percentage, but I, I think he's a considerably better shooter as a floor spacer, a catch-and-shoot guy. Then, then Karras, I mean, you look at his mechanics. I mean, they're about as close to perfect as you can get. I mean, high release point. There's no unnecessary motion. Like, the, the lower body balance is superb. So that's where I'm expecting him to take a leap should he get good volume as, as a floor spacing shooter. Yeah, and then the other thing about Karras is he's like six foot eight. I'm not saying he's Karras. That's sort of a difference. That's right, yeah. I think we forget how big Levert was. I mean – He's one of the better shot creators at the NBA level, so I'm not going to set Kobe up for that. But uh, as, as a secondary guy to get, get a pull-up and, and occasionally create plays, you know, what I will say is this for, you know, Bufkin was bullied a bit on the defensive end from time to time, but I don't know if people recall this, but he did a fairly good job of finishing through contact last year, which was surprising. Like, if you go back and look at his film, it's like, okay, wow, the, the body control and ability to sort of, you know, absorb contact from, from bigs at the rim was, was sort of surprising. So I'm, I'm really anxious to see what that looks like this year in terms of him being able to finish. He gets up. Yeah. All right. The backup situation at the shooting guard is a little bit up in the air. As uh, mentioned, we might see some two-point guard sets. And then there's two guys who are fairly similar in profile right now, and that's Joey Baker, the Duke transfer, and uh, Isaiah Barnes, the uh, redshirt freshman. So Baker played about 10 minutes a game for Duke the last three years as a career 38% three-point shooter, has not brought pretty much anything else in over the course of his career, had some off-season surgery, didn't play in Europe, supposed to be full go for the beginning of the season. And as you know, a fifth-year guy who played in a lot of uh, <clears throat> high-profile games, you can probably pencil him in as like a 10 to 15 a minute just to shoot her off the bench. Yeah, so to, to clear up any confusion, Baker is fully healthy at this point. He's a full go. He's a full participant in practice. So the expectation is, you know, that he will be ready for the season. Best pure shooter on the team. I don't think there's any question as a, as a catch-and-shoot guy. Not going to give you a lot off the bounce, but, but as Brian said, if you're forecasting him to be a 10- to 15-minute guy, you know, uh, I think you can run sets for him. You can have him shooting off movement, off screens, off flares and pin downs, and that's a big contrast to – you know, in relation to what we saw last year, where we didn't really have a guy that you could run sets for as a shooter. And I think he will provide that that sort of outlet to where you he has he has the gravity to to sort of open up the floor. Now, you know, the question for him is is if you're gonna play him at the shooting guard, you know, you're probably not gonna have him defending guards, but his offensive role will be that 
you know, of, of a shooting guard. But yeah, I think that's a quality depth option. And I think he has a chance to sort of outplay reasonable expectations, uh, you know, as a shooter. So, you know, I, I would look for him to be in those high 30s and potentially low 40s as a shooter. I really like what he can bring in, in, a, in a bench role as a shooter. And then Barnes is Barnes is also 6'7", bouncy, more much more of an athlete. Uh, didn't play at all last year, and given the way that season went, that probably said something about something. Still some reports that he's struggling to be consistent in terms of his positioning and uh, mental locked-in-ness. That's not a word. On defense. But a guy who performed pretty well in the box scores from Europe, and that's obviously very predictive. Yeah, so when we're talking about the guard rotation in terms of, of, of pure physical attributes, he's, he's at the top of the food chain, right? He's this guy 6'5", 6'6", great athlete, you know, great body, all those sort of things. The, the, the question for him, as you alluded to, is, is his processing of, of game speed and, and, and various play types. Can he make decisions that, that align with team goals at the pace of the game. And, and if he can do that, you know, there's going to be a role for him given his, his, what you would project for him defensively as, as an athlete, if he can knock down shots just at an adequate rate, you know, mid thirties, given his athletic prowess and what he can bring defensively, that's where he's going to be able to carve out his role. If, if he can process things on the court in a timely manner and have an impact defensively, then he'll get the opportunity to showcase his offensive abilities in terms of being a shooter. So you know, it's good to have those options between those two guys. And it could be that if Barnes comes along, well, then maybe you move Baker to the bench in more of a wing role. So that, that's another scenario that we can sort of play around with. Yeah. And given the fact that this team is going to need some help defensively, just in terms of athleticism, like if Barnes does really kind of come through and become a major piece this year, that's where I think he's going to make his hay, right? Because Baker's going to be a great shooter. But if this team needs someone to lock down a wing guy, Barnes is the guy who's got the athletic profile to do it. He just hasn't ever been reputed to do that so far in his time in Michigan. So let's let's just, you know, let's cut the Band-Aid off right now. We need a wing stopper. That's what they're called at the NBA. And he is the guy most ideally suited for that. And, right. and we just don't have a ton of options on the roster, you know, that that have the positional size and agility to sort of take on that role. And if he can just do that for literally 10 to 12 minutes a game and, and prevent foul trouble from guys that are maybe a bit out of position in defending those wings, that's a tremendous asset to, to this team. And my concern is that we needed that last year too. And yeah. like if he could do it, where was he? Right, <clears throat> He wasn't a true freshman last year. And yes, he was. Yes, he was. Yeah. He was a true freshman last year? Yeah, he was. He yes. was, yeah. Boy, years have gone by fast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry, it feels felt like a long time ago. Um, Okay, well, yeah, I, no, that's fair, Ben. But, I mean, they did really need that guy last year. And, you know, I would... Well, yeah, but there's... I mean, you saw what yeah. Buffkin was last year. I mean, there's a lot of true freshmen who come in and just aren't ready for the, the fight, right? Sure. Like, look at what happened to Keegan Murray over his first offseason, right? Like, that's... <laughs> That happens, and yeah. I'm not saying it's going to happen with Barnes, but he is a lottery ticket that would really improve Michigan's defensive outlook if he could come through. Yeah. All right, small forward. This is going to be Jet Howard, and then uh, you might see either one of the guys we talked about at shooting guard back up the, the three as well. Howard <clears throat> was reputed to be a guy who was mostly a shooter but did develop into a secondary playmaker at IMG over the course of his senior year. Six foot eight, top 50 recruit. Related to the head coach, probably going to be a pretty high usage dude. 
Yeah, so in terms of, of the hierarchy and scoring, it wouldn't surprise me to see Jet be the number two option, even as a freshman, right? That positional size, as you referenced, that 6'8", and, and the release is really quick here. And he's not just a guy that that is, you know, standing in the corner. He can get his own offense. He can hit, pull up some things of that nature. And uh, as, you, as you mentioned, he did show some flashes of some secondary playmaking, both in the EYBL circuit and at IMG. Now, is he going to be a primary on-ball option? No. But you don't need him to be at that size, just secondary. And, and the question for him is, in terms of that shot-creating ability, can he further develop the left hand? If he can do that, given his positional size and strength, I think it goes a long way for him. But, you know, with Dickinson and Llewellyn, you know, if he can just create the occasional play and, and be a high 30s guy from distance on a good volume, that's going to go a long way. I don't think there's any question Jed Howard's going to be a double-digit score for Michigan this year. I think the question for him is on the other end, you know, because he's being used interchangeably, at least in early practice with Bufkin. They're running him at the 2-3. It's just – you know, if you want to use him at the two without Bufkin on the floor, can he defend a two at the other end? That's the open question. And, and that's where, you know, things sort of get ambiguous in terms of those four guys that, that we mentioned with Bufkin, Howard, Baker and Barnes. Who's going to be that sort of wing stopper that can defend a two three? And that's who will you know, is going to be in line for some heavy rotational minutes. So backup situation here, as we mentioned, the two guys who we mentioned at shooting guard. Jace Howard might be sort of a three and D option. He got scattered minutes a year, uh, a year ago, looked very dogged. Uh, didn't really show a whole lot in terms of creating his own offense. But as we've mentioned, we, that's not really a huge priority for backup guys on this roster. Yeah. So Jace Howard, you don't, you, you know, you don't care what you get from him offensively. He's a guy that just plays hard. He's a reasonable athlete. And he's he's huge, right? Like the guy is ripped. I don't know what he what they have him listed at, but he's probably 220 pounds, six, 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 seven, somewhere, somewhere in that vicinity. And we saw it last year. I mean, there was a stretch where he adequately defended Kofi Cobra, which is insane when you think about it. But you know, so he's a guy that you can't throw out there, depending on the matchup and the surrounding lineup, that you could throw him out there for three, four, five minute stretches, and he can get you a few stops. And, and I am optimistic. He's, you know, he's never going to be a 20 minute per game guy, at least with this team, not this early in his career. But if he can carve out a role, you know, if nothing else is working where he's out there for five to eight minutes of defense, it, it, like I said, it just, it just goes a long way given this roster construction. And it pro- uh, actually, we're going to take a break. We're going to take a break to come back to talk about the front court. Want the perfect game day outfit? Underground Printing has unique, great-fitting U of M apparel and officially licensed apparel from legendary Michigan names like Woodson, Howard, Eufer, and more. UGP also specializes in custom printed apparel and promotional items for groups, events, and businesses. Whether you need one shirt as a gift or 1,000 shirts for a charity walk, Underground can customize almost anything for groups large or small. To learn more, visit Underground Printing in one of our three convenient locations around Ann Arbor or online at undergroundshirts.com. It's painless. It's online. It's group ordering made easy for your next custom printed apparel order. Pogo from Underground Printing will save you time and hassle. Whether you're selling shirts for a fundraiser, organizing a large event, trying to collect sizes and payments for a family reunion, 
or, you know, ordering a whole bunch of shirts with your Kickstarter. Underground Printing is here to help. Save time and hassle every step of the way with their easy-to-use site. No more guessing what to order, chasing people down to pay, wasting time trying to sort out the order. They'll set it up. You can just sit back and relax. They'll even take care of individual shipping. To learn more about Pogo, visit them at any of their convenient locations or, under, or at pogo.undergroundshirt.com. At Peak Wealth, we believe we can help you retire with confidence. It's Nick Hopwood, Certified Financial Planner from Peak Wealth Management in Plymouth. I graduated from Michigan in 2001 with an econ degree and founded Peak Wealth Management in 2014. And now we have over $240 million of assets under management. As a freshman in 97, winning the national championship in football and hockey didn't get any better than that. Both my wife and I lived in Bursley that year, and it's crazy because we never actually met while living in the same dorm. Probably because she had a car and I had to ride the bus. But we named our dog Bursley anyway, and he's on the payroll here at Peak Wealth Management. At Peak, we're fee-based. We're your fiduciary, which means everything we recommend is always in your best interest. We partner with leading institutional money managers, focus on low fees, and make sure every client has a financial plan covering retirement, college, tax, estate, insurance, and cash flow. Simply put, we are Peak Wealth Management, your comprehensive financial coach. Book your second opinion at peakwm.com slash mgoblog. Peak Wealth Management. Retire with confidence. One and two and... If you find yourself on the wrong side of the law, you want a Michigan man in the huddle. Call criminal law attorney and former prosecutor Jonathan Paul at 248-924-9458 or visit his website at michiganlawgrad.com. John is a proud graduate of the University of Michigan Ross School of Business and Michigan Law School. He looks forward to showing you the Michigan difference. It can be a rough ride along the information superhighway. That's why we build our e-commerce websites tough enough to handle the load. With the capacity to take hundreds of simultaneous online transactions and the stability of load-balanced, co-located server architectures, a website from Human Element performs in the roughest conditions. Thousands of products? No problem. We'll throw in the tools to manage them with precision and efficiency. All with a design slick enough to make you think your girlfriend might be impressed. So load it up and hit the gas and let Human Element show you the way. Special offers available for returning licensees. Financing available with approved credit to qualified buyers. Client participation may affect savings. Optional equipment available at additional cost. See human-element.com for details. Bad news for you, Brian. Uh, did I lose another toe? No, but the Illinois Fighting Illini of Illinois uh, tickets are now more expensive than the Nebraska one. So if you didn't, <laughs> go to Ticket IQ, where the price that you see is the price that you pay when I told you to, and get your tickets for that Michigan-Illinois game, which is going to be a preview of the Big Ten championship game. Um, now now the price is getting up to 100 
and still climbing. So uh, you might want to jump on that if you see some seats that you like. And here's my trick. The seats that get in are always, you know, the level that people want. You know, but the you can pay $15 a ticket more, $20 a ticket more, and have a massive upgrade in seats. So for me, it's worth it to try to look around and see what's out there and not just go for, like, the get-in price because that's there's going to be a bunch of bad tickets at that level, and then it, it's not that much money to, to kind of upgrade a little bit from there. All right, so if you want to go to the Illinois game, the Titanic matchup between top 25 opponents that is apparently in the offing, now's your time to strike. All right, so at power forward, Terrence Williams steps into the starting lineup. Uh, six foot seven, junkyard dog type, really improved his shooting a year ago. Showed a lot of high low chemistry with uh, Hunter Dickinson as when they were freshmen. Uh, maybe not the biggest guy in the world, maybe not the most athletic guy in the world, but a guy who makes the kind of plays that win you basketball game. Yeah, so I I I couldn't put it any better. Like if Terrence Williams is not playing for Michigan last year. We don't we don't reach the sweet 16. I mean, how That's many right. critical offensive rebounds did that guy get? Like, I, I often say this, and you'll see me say it on Twitter, like, you know, he's the epitome of wanting it more. If you could describe that and you could visualize it, he's the guy. Like it's he's not, got that dog in him. Yeah. He's <laughs> it's not always going to be aesthetically pleasing, but when you need to play, like the guy came through in critical moments. So, you know, he's again, he's not a guy that specializes in any one skill facet. But he is a guy that does a bit of everything. He can hit a three-point shot. He can occasionally post up. He can, you know, get you an offensive rebound. And the, the most underrated thing that he does, as you said, Brian, is it's the chemistry with Hunter Dickinson. He just knows ball placement on those entry passes, whether it's over the top, whether it's a ball fake and a bounce pass, you know, into the post. He just thrives with that guy for whatever reason. And if you can optimize Hunter Dickinson, uh, there's going to be a pretty substantial role for you on this team. I mean the. The thing that jumps out to me from Terrence Williams is that Tennessee game because I was I was watching that game and I'm dying because Caleb Houston is just having one of those nights. Where... <laughs> yeah, I've tried to sort of uh, be more diplomatic about it, but yeah, I was at that game and I was in the stands and uh, I, yeah, I couldn't disagree with you. I, I think that had we had Williams in the game earlier, it may not have been that uh, that close to begin with. Well, and and then Williams comes in and he immediately yeah. just ups his own effort level he ups the team's effort level he's getting offensive rebounds and the value of having a guy like that is you can't overstate it he just he doesn't need the ball to impact the game that's the best thing you can say about him and that that's it's critical that you have one of those guys i mean it's just that simple he doesn't need plays ran up for him in order for him to score eight nine points a game grab four or five rebounds a dish out and an assist or two so that's that's where his value comes in yeah frank Frankly, I thought he was better than Caleb Houston last year. Like that was he. I mean, Houston had his had his moments. moments. He's a much better defender than people gave him credit for. But I do want to make the point though that um, Houston was playing the three really for Michigan last year, and what we're talking about is playing Williams at the four, which he didn't get to do very much of last year because you know you have Diabate at the four. You're not taking that guy off the court. So I think that like when you transfer what he was doing. Um, and you know, you are what you can guard. This is something you, um, Matt says all the time, right? Like, but when you look at like the, just the construction of the roster, if you have a three point shooter out the three and you have Terrence Williams guarding fours, I think it's just a much better role for him. And the few times he actually got to play that role last year, he was money. I mean, he, we barely used Brandon Johns down the stretch because he was, you know, we had, he will. 
Yeah, you know what? And I'll tell you, there are reports that that he's, you know, quietly taken on a leadership role. Like he's been vocal in practice, sort of holding guys accountable, pushing them to be the best versions of themselves. So that tells me that that, you know, the fact that he's been given that sort of role that the staff believes in him and they believe him to be a 25 to 30 minute per per game type of guy. And if he can just be reasonable, you know, let's say 35% from distance while providing all the other things he does without having the ball, that's a really, really solid big 10 player. Maybe not an all conference level player, but you don't, you don't need him to be given, given the other pieces that we have around him. Kenny Goins. That's who he is. Hey, if you can give me upperclassman Kenny Goins with Hunter Dickinson, I, I, I jump for joy. Yep. I mean, he had about the same usage in terms of shots gotten up as Caleb Houston a year ago. His O rating was 117 versus Houston's 103. I mean, I think you bring in the five-star, you got to show that you're going to play the five-star, but the team probably would have been better if the playing time was equally split between those two, and I'm looking forward to seeing Terrence Williams, see what he can do in a full-time starting role. All right, the backups here are very murky. So they have three guys who are new to the program or red-shirted. Uh, Will Shetter, Greg Glenn is a true freshman, and then Yusuf Hyatt is the Lebanese kid that they got out of France recently. All of these guys have limitations. All of these guys have upsides. Um, you could see Jace maybe get some some time here. He has the requisite size. You could honestly see Isaiah Barnes maybe get some minutes here. And I guess it depends on what you want exactly because, you know, Glenn is probably going to red shirt. He's probably a developmental project prospect, so we'll leave him aside. Shedder is extremely skilled offensively, a guy who can post up against smaller guys, a guy who's a really good three-point shooter. Defensive questions are vast. <laughs> and then Hyatt is a guy who looks really good uh, playing decent competition in Europe, has those arms that kind of remind you of Franz, He's a little slight right now, also a shooter from the outside, high energy guy, sort of a, gives you the same kind of energy Terrence Williams does, but you know, wasn't with the team this offseason, wasn't there on the Europe trip, is going to probably take a while to break into the lineup. Yeah, so I think we all sort of know, we all sort of agree that in order for Michigan, at least this iteration of Michigan, to reach its ceiling, we need Yusuf to, to be the optimal version of himself at some point this year, maybe not in November and December, but, but come February, we need that because right. As Brian said, you know, Glenn's been, you know, he's been taking practice reps with the bigs. So that tells you, you know, it sort of points to where, where he's headed this year. Shedder, there, there are vast defensive questions about where he fits in. And Yusuf is sort of that middle ground where he can hit a shot from the outside, has the, the agility to, to sort of defend that fort but he needs to add some muscle mass, needs to get acclimated to the system, learn the American style of play, but he has the motor. And, and I really love his, his shot mechanics and, you know, reports from practice are that he's looked good as a floor spacing shooter, but he still needs to latch on in terms of all the nuances of the playbook and, and identifying the various defensive coverages. But if he can get those things down and, and he can commit them to memory, I really like him as a spark plug, even, even later this year, long-term, I don't think there's any question he's going to be, He's going to be pretty good, but I would really love it for this team if he can sort of crack that consistent rotation this year. Yeah, and the thing is, uh, UM Hoops and Eric Shapiro did a, a video with a breakdown. They watched a full game of his, and they kind of pulled out every interesting play, and you had a lot of good defensive moments, ability to stay in front of guys smaller than him. And then the other thing that stood out was he was a terrible rebounder. <laughs> Just a yeah. 
I mean, giant liability. He's, so he's, that's he's slight, can't really absorb contact. I don't, you know, I I, I believe I've seen, you know, s- some industry sites list him at six, he's not six ten. So let's get that out of the way right now. You know, he's probably closer to six seven, six eight. I don't know what the length is, but yeah, he's more of a a finesse player right now. That's that's what I'll call him. But you know, I think his potential to be a, an adequate perimeter defender and knock down shots at that four spot would complement this roster really well if he if he can provide that. Yeah, I was I almost considered him a uh, like you know, more he's a wing, not a forward. Like he's a guy who's I mean the, the, one of the practice reports that came out of uh, basketball media day was that he was actually playing the two a little bit. And I know that like Michigan really kind of just considers like the way they look at it they got a point guard and a center and then everyone just kind of fits around, right? Like they they don't particularly care. But I mean he was going up and guarding twos like, cuz he's supposed to have the kind of agility to you know, I'm and I'm not saying he's going to defend, you know, complete guards, but he is going to, you know, he he can be that wing defender maybe. I mean, if he gets a little bit stronger, like that's the kind of guy that he projects as maybe maybe later next year, maybe maybe you know, next season, but that's kind of what I'm hoping to see out of him and not expecting, you know, the bigness uh to really come through. Well, and sometimes you get in these youth leagues and just nobody is on your ass about rebounding. So I think some of it is just like how much attention he's been paying to that part of his game versus how much of attention is he doing to skill development. Um, so I think he's got a shot at being a decent rebounder this year. And then hopefully after camp Sanderson, he'll have a breakout year too. Um, finally, center position, Hunter Dickinson and almost doesn't really need to be discussed. <laughs> We know exactly what Hunter Dickinson is going to bring us. I guess what we're looking for is maybe a little bit of incremental shooting because he did uh, add some three-point shooting to his game last year. And if he was able to be uh, higher usage there, that disrupts certain defenses and would be helpful. And then just like, what is he going to look like on the defensive end of the the floor? Because as a freshman, he was a fantastic post defender. He like took on... Uh, Luca Garza and won that decisively without Michigan doubling. And <clears throat> he was a drop defender on offense, uh, uh, on pick and roll stuff. And his lateral mo- mobility wasn't the best. And it's like, all right, well, maybe he'll progress a little bit in that department next year. He did not really. Um, we didn't really see him have those kind of post battles because some of those guys left the league. And then his, you know, he's not switchable. He's a guy who, the reason he's not in the NBA right now is because of his defense. Yeah, so I, I think if, if, if fans are expecting Dickinson to all of a sudden, you know, be Anthony Davis, you know, on the perimeter in terms of his defense, I, it just it's just unreasonable, right? To a certain extent, Sanderson can improve you, you know, marginally and, and even up to considerably, but you don't go from below average agility to all of a sudden being switchable. It's just not it's not viable, right? So, right. you know, let's let's sort of take it for what it is. He's never going to be an all-out all switchable defender. So the best you're going to be able to hope for with him is to really just a, a show-and-recover type of approach. And, you know, depending on what, how the defense looks beside him, maybe you can get away with that for, for, for stretches, you know, given his length and, and his familiarity with the system and his experience. But, you know, as Brian alluded to, I, I think he's probably fully optimized as, as more of a drop coverage defender where he can just – sort of create a wall, uh, you know, at the rim. Is that more viable this year if Michigan's guards are longer and more athletic so those pull-ups in front of him aren't as good in terms of shots? Well, well 
let's let's get behind the premise of drop coverage. What you want your guards to do is, is essentially fight over screens and provide backside pressure. Well, you know, it, it's good in theory, but I mean, when your guards are 5'10", 5'11", or whatever they were last year, you know, when you're already in trail coverage and you're not the biggest guy, it's just hard to contest. I mean, it's just, it is what it is. So it puts more stress on Dickinson to store, sort of show early rather than wait and funnel. So I do think Llewellyn helps to that extent, but but then you have to also consider, you know, is Dougie McDaniel, whether he's in that equation. So we also have to consider that. But you're right, though, with a guy like Buffkin and Llewellyn, I think they're more equipped to, to do that, is to sort of funnel them to, to Dickinson and have him just contest with his length and, and hope that you can alter shots and just grab the rebounds. He was also playing with his uh, with an ankle. So, I mean, if that's healed this year, I, that might give him a little bit more agility. I mean, that, last year there were times when it was like, that's not Hunter. Yeah, he, he did seem to lose a little bit of lift. And the thing with Biggs is like, you know, he's not going to be Anthony Davis. But in terms of guys who take the longest to like kind of hit their final form, Biggs are it. So I think that there's maybe a little bit more to explore in terms of his ability to to move around the court, to maybe get a little bit more elevation, to alter a little bit more sh- shots. Like, I don't think he's ever going to be like a defensive player of the year in the league or anywhere close, but I, I do think that there's still some some upside left there. You know, sort of circling back around to what I said in the beginning here, though, is that you may be able to get away with some of those more aggressive ball screen coverages simply because the guards in the league just aren't as good this year. And, and maybe that's an experiment, experimentation process that we go through to sort of gauge, you know, where are we given the context of the competition this year? So I, I still believe, you know, at, at the core, he's best in drop coverage. But again, it's all relative. You know, it's, it's relative to the competition. And if we can get away with that and, you know, because we have to remember that the, the overarching goal for, for Juwan Howard, and I think he even said this in media days, is that we just want to generate more turnovers. Like, I mean, in, in more aggressive ball screen coverages are inherently part of that. So, you know, I think that's that's where we're at in terms of why this could potentially be used. So if that's the goal, you know, it is going to lead to more turnovers, but you don't want to leave your defense vulnerable if, if things aren't going well. So I think there's there's a balance there. Yeah, and I mean, the other thing with Hunter is, like, is he going to be able to maybe up his usage a little bit? Because he's a guy who shoots 60% from the floor, and was 80% from the line last year. Like, can he get to the line a little bit more? Can he just sort of have more of a presence? I mean, not that he doesn't have a presence, but just how how much more can he get? Can he get into that Ken Palm player of the year conversation? Yeah, so I, I think he, I don't know what the preseason projections are for him, but, you know, Given what we saw from him last year, we did see him add to his bag last year. You know, early in the year, he was comfortable hitting mid-range jumpers out to 18. Then later in the year, he started going to to three with some sort of decent volume. And I think that for him, I think the progression is going to be not only as a scorer, where it's going to be incremental. I mean, how much better can you get than what he did in terms of scoring last year? But I I think his playmaking is going to be paid off a bit better this year. I do think the shooting will be better. And I think his usage will go up, but maybe not necessarily as purely a score. It may go up as a playmaker. I think his O rating will go up just because he, he's going to get more assists because yeah. his guys are going to knock things down, right? Like yeah. last year, I, I, he was I a, yeah. I mean, he kicks I it out Seth's last year. Was it going yeah. to? <laughs> I think Seth is is I, I wholeheartedly agree with Seth here. I think his usage is going to go up, but maybe just in a different capacity. Mm-hmm. Well, and the interesting thing about Dickinson's. 2022 is that so he's got his overall o rating which is 120 which is amazing right 
And what you see is when he gets into conference games or tier air games, that doesn't drop off at all. He was actually better in Big Ten play because he had the same O rating and he had a couple more points of usage. And like it just doesn't matter to some extent who you put on him short of a Kofi Coburn. Maybe Zach Eady is able to do it this year, but to have that kind of opponent invariancy where it's just like it doesn't matter who's it going to be out there, Hunter Dickinson is going to be a good bet to put up 20 and 10. So, like, that's I, so I, valuable. I have uh, an interesting uh, sort of theory that I've been debating myself internally. Last year, we all wanted Hunter to sort of be more perimeter oriented to, to basically open up the paint because of Diabati. He was such a good athlete, and, and you know, we saw what he did to Keegan Murray. This year, I'm actually more inclined to want him in the post just because you surrounded him with better shooting where he can operate more as a, a point guard and create shots for others. And that's sort of tagging along with what Seth said. Now, instead of Diabate, you know, sort of in that corner spacing role, you have Williams, which is a much more viable option. And I'm not inclined to think that teams are going to be able to double as much. So I think I want him more as a traditional paint bound big, at least offensively just to see if that's what optimizes the offense, at least early on in the year. No, I, I think that's that's probably a good point because if you look at this roster, like Greg Glenn's not going to play, and the only other non-shooter who's going to maybe get time is Jace Howard. Everybody else is at least likely to be a thirty mid-30s three-point shooter, and a couple of them have upside to be excellent, especially if they're getting looks off, clean looks off of Hunter Dickinson doubles. So... Yeah, I think that's really astute. Like, he, we don't need Dickinson on on the perimeter much this year. Like, you know, it's always good to ha- have it as a changeup, just because people will not expect it. You'll get some some buckets at the rim as, as Dickinson lifts centers out of the paint. But everybody on this team, with maybe one or two limited exceptions, projects as a shooter. Which you is know, big- and, and circling back around to something Brian said earlier, something I kind of harped on last year is that we couldn't get Dickinson buckets easy buckets as a role man last year and sort of circling back around to what brian said maybe that increased size from llewellyn at the point guards position allows him to sort of see over the top when we're running those spain pnrs to just sort of lob that ball in a position where he can just catch and go up and dunk or maybe with with lobs you know every every now and then. i know hunter's not a big vertical vertical threat but but he has the sheer size and catch radius to do that so that's something i want to see if we can take advantage of it's just the ability to get him easy buckets rather than him have to grind them out, you know, as sort of a back to the basket player on, on motion weak sets and things of that nature. So that's something I'd like to see more of if, if Llewellyn can, can operate as such. Well, and that also goes back to the three point shooting, right? Cause you can yeah. tag off Musa Diabate and it's not going to really harm anything. Yeah. But you know, if you're tagging off Terrence Williams, then yeah, giving that guy an open corner three is not a look that you're probably going to want very much. So I think that will open up and you might see, Hunter be able to like get that increment more towards player of the year kind of status. Yeah, it was there last year too. Like he threw out ball, he, he threw pass out, and like Caleb Houston would miss it, or you know a guard would take it off the ball and and, and try to go inside. Like there were a lot of opportunities last year that Michigan just turned down, and this year they're just going to be a, they're a team that are that's built to shoot from the perimeter this time. So those shots are going to go up and they're going to go down. Um, it's not like he needs to add something to his game in order to produce that. All right. Finally, Terrace Reed, freshman center, 6'10", 260 out of Missouri's Link Academy, number 35 overall in the 24-7 composite. And that 260 is, it really shows up on film. He is, he is a ready to go 
center physically from a from a, just a height, size, strength position. He's going to be an excellent rebounder. Has some face-up game. Uh, has a little bit of skill in terms of like eight to ten foot jump shots. Probably not going to extend much farther than that. But just in terms of low post beastliness, uh, probably the best guy entering the league this year. And uh, hopefully next year we'll be rounding into not much of a drop off from Hunter Dickinson overall. Yeah. So tree trunks for legs. I mean that guy is uh, pretty, pretty, pretty big in the lower body, and just by uh, you know, sheer size and strength, I don't know that there are going to be many players equipped to to deal with defending him, particularly bench bench picks. And uh, I like the touch around the rim. He can put the ball on the floor from the elbow area for one or two dribbles and, and sort of make something happen, make something happen there. And I'm very optimistic on him long-term. We're not going to need him a ton this year, but you know, I think the, the area where we really want to evaluate him is, is the other side. You know, what are you going to be able to do with him defensively? Cause he doesn't quite have that size of a hundred Dickinson and he's not agile enough to really be aggressive with them ball screen coverages. But in terms of offensive potency, I don't think there's any question. As soon as next year, he's going to be one of the better bigs in the conference. And so this year, you're just 10 to 15 minutes a game as a backup. See him block some shots, see if he can hang. I mean, spiritually, I mean, he's the same guy as Hunter Dickens defensively, where you're going to want to drop coverage Mm -hmm. with him, use his size to uh, dissuade passes over the top, and then hopefully... Does, I mean, how much bounce does he have? He's not quite as big as Hunter Dickinson. Does he have more ability to go up and swat a shot? Or the, the, the issue with, with both of them is pretty much the same, is that they need sort of a running start to get off the floor. Like from a, okay. from a stationary position, yeah, you're not going to get a ton of lift from either one of those guys. All right. So that's the roster. We're going to take another break, come back and sort of sum everything up and then take a look at the league. Hey, it's Nick Hopwood, founder and president at Peak Wealth Management. We have a lot in common. We both went to Michigan. We're both huge fans, but I'm concerned about how much time you're spending on Michigan football recruiting. This could be time spent with me pouring over your cash flow and Roth conversion strategy. How are these Roth conversions going to get done with you spending all your time and energy on MGO blog looking at the next five-star recruits? Hey, all kidding aside, if you're addicted to MGO blog and you want to outsource some of your financial planning to an expert, consider us, peakwm.com slash mgoblog. At Peak, we work with people in a variety of situations. Some of our clients are young professionals looking to optimize their savings and investments. For young people, time is the key. Some of our clients are super affluent trying to figure out when they can retire. Some are high net worth retirees looking for a second opinion on how their money's working for them. Get your second opinion at peakwm.com slash mgoblog. Peak Wealth Management. Retire with confidence. The only thing we can be sure of about the future is that it will be absolutely fantastic. I'm thinking of the incredible breakthrough made possible by developments in communications. Arthur C. Clarke's 1964 vision is now reality with SignalWire, a cloud platform that enables developers to build the applications that will reshape the future of communications. These things will make possible a world in which we can be in instant contact with each other wherever we may be. You can add cutting-edge, real-time video and audio to any product, website, or app application with APIs and SDKs for developers of all skill sets. SignalWire is optimized for high quality and low latency communication functionality, video, voice, and text messaging capabilities. Almost any skill could be made independent of distance. Men will no longer commute. They will communicate. See for yourself at SignalWire.com. Use code 2021 and receive $25 in developer credit. Go to SignalWire.com. SignalWire Communications OG. Original geeks of programmable communication. Hey, so I have like insurance and stuff, but I don't really like know what's going on with it. 
Yeah, you- it, your your coverage probably sucks, and you're paying way too much for it. And I know this because I had a guy. Uh, he's a uh, his name's Phil Klein. He's actually a Michigan alum and wrestled for Michigan. He okay. looked at my insurance and he was like, "Yeah, your coverage sucks." And you're paying a lot more than you need to for it. I also like, I, I hesitate to even mention this, but I do have my insurance from a company that advertises during college football games. Well, and I wish that was not the case. Well, why don't you just get it from a cool guy who actually like reads them go blog? Well, how would I do that? They have a website. <laughs> they have one of those too. It's philkleininsurance.com. Can you remember the name Phil Klein? Sure. Can you remember insurance? Yes. Okay. Use those two together. And you will save money on your insurance, and you will actually get better coverage on your home and your auto, and they do life, too. All right. So, you're telling me if I Google Phil Klein Insurance, this this website will come up. Yes. Wonders never cease. It's painless. It's online. It's group ordering made easy for your next custom-printed apparel order. Pogo from Underground Printing will save you time and hassle, whether you're selling shirts for a fundraiser, organizing a large event, or trying to collect sizes and payment for a family reunion, UGP is here to help. Save time and hassle every step of the way with our easy-to-use site. No more guessing what to order, chasing down people to pay, or wasting time trying to sort out the order. We'll set it up and you can just sit back and relax. We can even take care of individual shipping. To learn more about Pogo, visit us at any of our convenient locations or at pogo.undergroundshirts.com. I was at venue once again after the BU game on Sunday and some guys came in and we talked and we had some wings and it was a good time because they weren't weird. So if you're not weird and it's after a hockey game, I'll probably be there. Stop by. Enjoy the food. Enjoy the drinks. Enjoy the ambient techno, which, well, no ambient techno. Oh, well. All right. So we've gone through the roster. Michigan is coming off a fairly strange season where they go 19 and 15 against a brutal schedule. Kind of disappoint. We go 11 and 9 in conference, get booted in the first round of the conference tournament, then make the Sweet 16. Um, and then you turn over four of those five starters, plus one of the guys who you thought was going to come up and, and kind of fill that. So, a lot of uncertainties here. How are we feeling this season plays out? So, me, uh, you know, from, from my perspective, I don't, I think I'm a bit more optimistic than, than most fans. And that's just simply because of the state of the league. I, I think this is probably the most down the Big Ten has been in, in, in a few years. And uh, just by sheer virtue of talent, I, I think that we're still in the upper echelon of, of the conference. I mean, I don't know how you guys see it, but I mean, I'm not going to go so far as to say that we're the conference favorites, but it wouldn't shock me to see Michigan be a top three, four team in the league this year. Seth? Yeah, yeah. there's kind of a second tier if we're getting into the Big Ten, like, 
that Michigan's part let's of. Just, right? Let's just talk but, about but the what I'm saying. Yeah, but, but what I'm going at here is that the defense is kind of what scares me. Um, you know, Frankie was supposed to be that lockdown defender at guard. We lost him. Llewellyn, kind of a you know, I I'm hoping that the the defense improves in the point guard spot. But you're losing Eli, and he was a big part of like just getting everybody organized. Uh, Caleb Houston, underrated defender out there. You know, now you're going to replace him with Jet Howard, a true freshman. Some questions about him. You know, we lose Musa Giabate. That was a excellent defender who just you know who could lock down guys that nobody else could in the league could stop. So I mean, really, my yeah, questions are defense. I think this team's going to be able to score buckets. <clears throat> buckets. It's just can they? Are, are they just going to get into like big races? And goes back to the you know the top of the league. Everyone else is kind of in that boat too. I mean, for me, the defense is more about as. Matt said wing stoppers because you go back to 2021 that was the number four defense in the country and it had Hunter Dickinson at center so clearly Hunter Dickinson is not enough of a liability that you can't have a really awesome defense the only thing is they had Franz Wagner and Isaiah Livers Hmm. so any sort of semblance of someone fronzing up or lives or live that's not gonna work um is it would be highly encouraging I just don't necessarily see it like Hyatt's probably your best bet or or jet howard um if he really gets religion about the other side of the ball which i mean his dad's the coach so probably he will but just seems like those guys would be a year away from having any sort of discussion about being in even close to that stratosphere so i do think there's a kind of a hard cap on the defense but if you surround hunter dickinson with shooters tons of shooters and not like guys who sometimes hit five of seven and then sometimes go oh of eight like they're not going to be locked into that one guy this year right they're going to be like all right that guy's not having a good game we're just going to move on and have someone else step up so <clears throat> i think they'll have an excellent uh offense and i think their defense is an open question but not not really the worst one now moving on to the league uh oof. <laughs> this is going to be <laughs> so I'm looking at the Ken Palm projections and they have 10 of the 14 teams in the big 10 projected to have between 10 and 12 wins. Obviously isn't going to work out like that, but the there's no clarity about where anybody is. And Indiana is the one team projected to go 13 and seven there. Everybody in their predictive metrics is like, okay, this is the best team in the league, but do you really believe in Indiana? And then after Indiana at 12, you have Iowa at 23, which is like not going to happen. Um, and then you have five more teams in the Big Ten in the next 10 spots in the Ken Palm rating. And then you have another four from 46 to 56. So this is probably the most wide open the Big Ten has ever been. Yeah, so I uh, let me just get this out of the way. I am not a believer in Indiana being the front runner of the Big Ten. I <laughs> I just right. don't uh, I don't agree with that. You know, I it's, I don't think there is a consensus in terms of who is the the, the best team. But I, I will say that I think Illinois' offseason moves put them in a position to maybe you could potentially see a path to them being the the, the best team in the conference. But I don't think it's so clear cut as to call them you know, the, the, the prohibited favor or anything like that. But I certainly don't see it being Indiana. And uh, you're right. The, the, the league, is, it's, it's very up in the air this year. I mean, there are a lot of what I would call middling to above average teams, and there's not a lot of separation there. I mean, yeah, your, your guess is as good as mine as to where how this thing all plays out. 
I mean, but, the case for Indiana is Xavier Johnson and Trace Jackson Davis, that you have two solid guys who are coming back. Race Thompson's back to give you some defense. Miller Cop can shoot. You know, they got a guard who can shoot. Like, they, like that's... They have a case where a lot of every other team is like, okay, here's if your if your case is Xavier Johnson. Yeah, I, I'm just saying, <laughs> <laughs> I don't see it. I I just don't see it. Uh, making a, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, no, but like, that, no, I mean you're you're right. Like it, I mean, that's but that's like what the case is, right? And yeah. for Illinois, it's like, okay, what do we do in a post Kofi world? Because they brought in a bunch of guys, but Matt Meyer is definitely not a center. Coleman Hawkins is definitely not a center. And where is the size coming from on that team? And I, I really don't know. Brandon, Brandon Underwood actually used the term positionless size that, to describe his team this year. So, Oh, that's what it's going to have to be. Yeah. I mean, and how, how well is that going to work against Zach Eady and you know, Hunter Dickinson? And Cliff Omaruyi, right? Like, I'm not sure that that's really going to. So, so I, I, I got to put this out there now because we go through this every year. And I know every year I've been a skeptic. Does is this the year Wisconsin finally sort of falls off? I mean, a lot of people are projecting that. I mean, they were really carried by Johnny Davis last year, and now it's like Tyler Wall going to pick up that. I he's mean, supposed to be the guy for them this year, I believe. So, I mean, right? You've like seen every flashes. year, you know, they're 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 right there, and I just. I don't. I don't know. I'm skeptical again this year. How? 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 I just. I don't see how they always come out of nowhere. Like you know, Jordan Davis is going to be awesome this year, or something like that. Just some weird thing. Did, did they get a? Did they get an eighth year for Brad Davison, or is that just a joke? <laughs> they they did not. I mean, the thing about Wall is like he's a wing, right? But he shot sixteen percent from three last year. He's career twenty two percent three point shooter. So if that's your guy, like it's just hard for me to envision him either being enough of a post up threat to like make that irrelevant if you can just sag off of him on the perimeter and like dare him to shoot like how effective is he going to be as a as a lead dog now you're right seth that these guys somehow develop out of nowhere and become players that they were not before so maybe that's in the offing but there's there's a lot of question marks here and i i I mean i'm not really sold on wisconsin sticking with the rest of the league okay so by this then rutgers what about rutgers because they got I mean, Caleb McConnell back. They got Cliff Marie and, and uh, Paul McCahee. Like, Andre Hyatt's not a bad player. You can add him to the starting lineup. That's so far. I think we I, I, can, I think we could say, you know, at worst, they're going to be a top three defensive team in the league. I think them and Indiana will probably be the two, the two best teams defensively in the league. But I, I, offensively, though, where, you know, where are the points coming from in, in the half court? That's the question I have for them. I don't yeah, know I mean, they, that Geo Baker shooting a whole bunch for the last six years. Now, not like that's what you well, have you, to replace offensively. You, you're not just losing Geo Baker; you're losing Ron Harper. Yeah, and they brought in a, a transfer from the Patriot League who looks like the only guy under about six foot six who's going to be getting a lot of playing time. So that's going to be your point guard. And I mean, I don't know. They've they've really survived on just jacking up some stuff and having Baker or Harper knock it down. And unless they get a guy to replace that, I mean, I'm I'm skeptical that their offense is going to be able to keep pace to keep them in games. Yeah, I mean, the the knock on them is you know when you start going over the roster, who's the fifth guy? And they're talking about high energy Antonio Chole, who's a 
he reclassified just a couple months ago. He was supposed to be a senior in high school uh-huh. this year, and now he's you know playing in the Big Ten. So uh-huh. I, that's, <laughs> that sounds like kind of a hole to me, unless that guy's you know I don't know maybe he's an overager and decided to come finally or something. But I mean, go through the rest of the rest of the teams. Purdue, Purdue's got Zach Eady for half a game. More than half the game now. Well, like, I mean, if you want to talk Purdue, like. Well, the problem with Zach Eady was never like staying on the court last year. Like, it was the fact that he had to share it with Trayvon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but one game, but like Trayvon Williams was the guy who was preventing him from getting playing time. And they have a couple other interesting pieces too. So they have Caleb First, who's going to be a sophomore, who was I think a top fifty player, big dude, like a six foot eight power forward with some outside uh, shooting chops. Mason Gillis will be back. Um, Brandon Newman will be back. It's just like, okay, oh, they had right. I, they had Ivy run the point last year. Like, who's going to create uh, shots for them? Brian's dead on because for there, there was a few weeks stretch there in the summer where it looked like they were going to get Nigel Pack from Kansas State, and if they did that, they were probably going to be the conference front runner. But they didn't because of Miami, and I think we all know the reasons why he chose Miami over <laughs> Purdue. But that's a different discussion. But uh, yeah. Not adding Pack, I, you're right. I think there's a lot of question marks in terms of what are they doing in the backcourt because Brandon Newman is not a guy that sets the table. He's very much no. just a, just a no. shooter that they, finishes play. They don't they don't have anybody to sort of set the table for for Edie. They they got a guy from Utah, David Jenkins, who I mean he's he he's an outside shooter. He his uh, his stat line is 40, 36, 82. So he shoots better from three than he does from two, and been doing that for a long time. So I. I don't know if they can turn that guy into a point guard, but you know, if if you're trying to bank on one of these coaches, Matt Painter's not the worst one to trust. I mean, uh, uh, Jenkins. So he started at South Dakota State. He right. transfers to UNLV, and then he transfers to Utah, and now he's at Purdue. So when he was in a major conference, he shot 36 percent from two on really low usage. And then when he was at UNLV, which is a mid-major conference, he had much more usage, but he shot 38 percent, and is his assist rates have never really been in like I'm a I'm a point guard territory. So I I mean he's there. Mm-hmm. I mean they brought in Fletcher Lawyer, who's kind of the right shape, but he's that's a two guard as well. So I uh I yeah I just don't know. I mean if I I don't know how you are at Purdue and you just just don't get something point guard shaped in in the uh, the portal because. Anything, and you're looking like the the favorite, probably. Well, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's Thompson a coming out and he left. <clears throat> well, yeah. <laughs> uh, moving on to Iowa. Iowa still has a Murray. Uh, <laughs> I have a conspiracy theory that Chris Murray wasn't allowed to play very much last year, so they wouldn't lose both of them. Because uh, when he played, he looked almost as good as his brother. He had a 120 O rating on 24% usage, three level score, a guy who. I mean, if you wanted a plug-and-play version of Keegan Murray, this is literally the dude's twin. Um, and I just think he's going to be one of the best players in the league. So I do we do we need extensive discussion about Iowa? Like, it, I mean, they're going to have a great offense, a terrible yeah, defense. Right, exactly. The, 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 the players don't matter. It's we, like we know what it's going to be. Like we're going to have a prolific offense and a defense that hovers somewhere in the 80s to 120 on Ken Palm and – They'll flame out early in the tournament. That's just sort of how it goes. All right. So let's move on to Michigan State, uh, an interesting team that added absolutely nothing over the course of the offseason except freshman Jackson Kohler and a couple of uh, 
other guys who probably aren't going to be big contributors this year. They lose Marble. Uh, they lose Bingham. They lose, um, oh, I forget his name. They're their number one guy last year. Christie, Max Christie. <clears throat> Max Christie. And so you have a backcourt that looks kind of interesting. I've always liked Jaden Akins, Tyson Walker's back, AJ Hogard's back. Um, but their center situation looks hideously bad. Yeah. So they, it's not only hideously bad, I mean, just depth for the team in general. I mean, I don't do they even have a full roster full of scholarship players at this no, point? No, they have they have 10 scholarship guys. Yeah, and there's definitely some concerns with depth, but I'm with Brian. The uh, Hogar looks really good as a playmaker, not so much as a shooter. I mean, the, the way to defend him, uh, which we learned the hard way in game one, is not to blitz him, just <laughs> force him to shoot, <laughs> shoot, shoot, uh, shoot pull-up jump shots, which which we did adjust to in the second game, and that went quite well. But as Brian alluded to, I think uh, if there's one player in the Big Ten that you're looking to have a breakout season, it's probably Jay Nakins at this point. Yeah. The only issue with that is that Akins has missed a lot of time this offseason yeah. with injury issues. They don't really know when they're getting him back. They think it's going to be by the beginning of the season, but they don't know. The other kind of thing is that Max Christie was a little bit like uh, Caleb Houston from their perspective because comes in, huge recruit, give him a ton of playing time, uh, puts up a 43-32 line with a bunch of turnovers and then jets for the NBA when you're just like, is that addition by subtraction? The guy I was trying to think about is Gabe Brown. They lost Gabe Brown. So oh, okay. he was, yeah. He, he was a big piece for them. <laughs> yeah. So, <clears throat> I mean, their center situation is like Matty Sissoko, who's going to be on the court for about four minutes before he fouls out. <laughs> they got, I don't know if they can play Malik Hall there for any period of time. They have Joey Hauser. We've seen how that goes. And then they have a couple of freshmen. Um, uh, Kohler is six foot 10, might be able to do it. And then the other guy was like, on IMG's JV squad, and uh, I'm not going to diss. Cooper. Yeah, yeah, I'm not going to diss the IMG JV squad after they sent Zach Heaney to Purdue, but he was supposed to be a walk-on, and he got upgraded to a scholarship because Michigan State was only going to enter a season with nine scholarship players. So, I mean, that center situation looks lethal for their chances at winning the title. Now, will they make the tournament? Will they be a decent team? It looks like they got enough talent to do that but kind of looks like six to eight seed kind of territory for them again. Yeah. So that, uh, that center spot is just, it's, it's lacking is about the best way I can put it. As you said, Sissoko, if you look at him in a layup line, you think, geez, this guy is going to be an impact player. And then you watch him on the court. It's like, you know, (laughs) there's a, there's a lot to be desired. So I don't know, you know, he may start the season, but I don't know how many minutes he's going to get on a, on a nightly basis. And I don't know if you guys saw this, I believe it was today or yesterday. Izzo came out and said that Hauser now looks like the player he thought he was getting when he originally transferred from, from Marquette. And, uh, <laughs> we'll, 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 I guess we'll see how that goes when he has to play the five defensively. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what, what he's expecting. I mean, he is a very good shooter. Don't get me wrong. He's a, he's a viable offensive weapon, but it's just rough to slot him in defensively because he's just not agile enough to defend a four and doesn't have the sheer size to defend the paint. And there's just, there's nothing there. I mean, marble left. I mean, what? There's just there's nothing left. Those are your options, and that sort of is what it is. Can I also, for all the people out there previewing, just just make sure you understand this: the assist rates for Michigan State are not real. The score at Michigan State, if you're in the building, you get an assist. Okay, AJ <laughs> Hogar does not really have a 48 assist rating. Yeah, and I I, I look up and down their roster. I think they're going to be 
you know, Malik Hall, sort of the jack of all trades at the wing, as Brian alluded to, and, you know, how much do they lean into to Pierre Brooks this year? Last year, he didn't get a ton of run, sort of a mismatched forward in the in the mold of a, of a Terrence Williams. So I don't know, you know, what's what are they looking at with him this year? So, yeah, there's, there's definitely some question marks on that roster. Speaking of question marks, I cannot come up with a single explanation why Ohio State will not take a huge nosedive this year, except for Chris Holtman is good. Yeah, uh, they they it, you're right. I concur. I uh, other but for Holtman, I don't know how how they maintain. I mean, there's just I, I I mean I remember when we played Ohio State, and and I was thinking, but for basically EJ Liddell hitting NBA shots, this it wouldn't even be competitive. I mean, that's really what I yeah. thought at the time watching that game and. Without him, you know, I'm sure Zach Key's gonna he's gonna snatch up some usage, and he's a he's a pretty good player. I think he'll he'll score, but sort of undersized, and you're gonna lose something with him with him defensively as well. I mean, they brought in a couple of transfers. Sean McNeil's coming over from West Virginia, who and he was a productive player in the Big Twelve, not a star, but I think he'll be a key piece for them. Um, <clears throat> they also got oh god Isaac Likakale Likakale. Again, out of the Big 12, another guy who was a major contributor for them, um, but not a shooter at all. Um, and then you got Justice Suing back. You also lost uh, Michi Johnson. Is that he the guy who went in the first round of the draft? Uh, I think he's Malaki Branham. Malaki yeah. Branham, right? Yeah. Michi Johnson. Malachi Branham is the first round pick, yeah. 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 And so, I mean, ugh, I mean, they don't have a guy on this roster who's going to play very much over six foot eight. And Zed Key is not an athlete. He's not switchable. Yeah. He's a, he's a, He's a post player and he's surprisingly effective for his size, but you're, I mean, he's more Nick Ward than anything else. And that's a tough sell in 2022. Yeah. Particularly undersized Nick Ward. And, you know, it's, it's exacerbated by the fact that defensively you're really limited in terms of what you can do with him. And you don't really have the guard talent to sort of compensate for deficiencies elsewhere. Uh, all, you know, kudos to, to, to Holtman, as Brian said, he's very good. And, and, and but I don't know that, he can compensate for that sort of talent loss. And uh, we'll see how things shake out for them this year. But I, I'm not inclined to believe they'll be in the top two or three of the league this year. It's just a weird team that he's built this year. And like you said, Chris Holtman, you kind of have to trust him. But look at the, like the transfers he got. Uh, like Lele, he's a guy who gets in the lane. He's not a shooter, right? Sean McNeil, just a shooter. That, like that guy, can, can, but he doesn't really do anything inside. Uh, the other guy they brought in was, from, uh, was Tanner Holden from Wright State, who's another guy who just you know, goes to the rim. Um, and then, you know, Eugene Brown's on this team too. Seth Towns, like they have a lot of guys who are not great shooters on this team. So like when you kick it out, you're going to, you know, a 25% guy who needs to get in the lane and draw fouls. And like, that's, I is is that the strategy or they're all just going to like kick it out, dive in, kick it out, dive in. Like I, it's, it's going to be a weird team to watch. I hate how much I like watching Ohio State under Chris Holtman, but like I, I am intrigued to see how this is going to work out. Uh, the last team that has any sort of pulse that we haven't talked about yet is Maryland, and uh, I think it's asking a lot of Kevin Willard to do much of anything with this roster. You have Dante Scott back. You have Hakeem Hart back. They bring in Jameer Young, who's a point guard-ish transfer from Conference USA. But you lose Kudus Wahab after... Uh, single season cameo you lose fats russell you lose eric ayala on a team that went seven and 13 in the big 10 so i mean just getting back to the tournament seems like a pretty big ask for this group yeah i don't i don't see the tournament in their their future this year you just you lost too much and uh you know there's still a bit of a coaching transition in there so i 
Yeah, I can't can't say that I'm all that optimistic on their their outlook for 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 this season. So uh, yeah, that's that's where I'm at with the Terrapins. Does anyone have anything they want to say about Nebraska, Northwestern, or Minnesota? I, I miss Teddy Allen in a shot selection. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't he make the tournament like with New Mexico State last year? I think he did actually. Yeah. The one thing I got to say is that I saw an article that said, with Pete Nance gone, is it time for Chase Adish to step up? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not a betting man, but whatever the season of over-under on Northwestern wins is, take the under. Yeah, it's, uh, you have to wonder about Collins' job security at some point if this year is not, uh, not favorable for them. So, All right, so who's in the tournament? Oh, wait, no, you asked if I had the thing for the... I, oh, I mean, yeah, if you have something, I have a Penn State. I have a Penn State thing. Oh, I forgot. <laughs> I totally forgot about Penn State. <laughs> Micah Shrewsbury's second year, man. He's turning around. He's, he got oh, the wow. second greatest. He got the second best recruit in the history of the 24-7 era. And Kevin Najee as their uh, six foot eight center. And backing him up is Michael Henn, who's in his sixth team in five years. Wow. Yeah. All right. So transfer well, era. There you go. So uh, who's making the tournament? Well, I I believe Michigan will. Uh, okay. Illinois, you could put them in there. Let's say Indiana. Indiana. I think those three teams are probably in there. Purdue. Purdue. Yeah, Purdue will be in there. So Purdue. what do we think about sort of that next tier, which would be probably Michigan. Iowa, Wisconsin, Michigan State, probably. Michigan State. Yeah. What, what do we think about the prospects for those three teams? That's uh, uh, Rutgers yeah. in the tournament. It's happening again. Yeah. I mean, I, honestly, like, I was going to have defensive problems, right? But they do have a guy who could very well be the best player in the league, Chris Murray. Patrick McCaffrey's back after a pretty successful season. They have a lot of guys back. I know. I, I think they're going to sneak in again. I think Iowa will will do it. You, you know, one thing I'll say in, in favor of all those four aforementioned teams that we just talked about is that uh, – the league, there's real, there's really no separation. So on any given night, any of those teams can win, and that yeah. I think that bodes bodes well in their favor. So, yeah, I mean, and Michigan State will get in because uh, universe doesn't have enough good things for us. It's just not gonna, <laughs> like They're four and eight football season, and then missing the tournament. I'm not. That's not going to happen. It's 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 built in the contract that they're playing in March. That's just the way it is. So. Yeah, and then I I think Wisconsin like this is going to be a down year for the league, and I'm seeing like six or seven bids, and that's it. Because I don't think Ohio State's going to do it. I don't think Wisconsin's going to do it. It's it's hard for me to see a path for Ohio State given given what they lost. All right, one last thing. Uh, Michigan picked up a commit from center Papa Conte this weekend. Well, what can we expect out of Papa Conte? Defensive impact, right? So our last two centers in, in the previous two classes, Hunter Dickinson, Terrace Reed, both more skilled offensive guys that are closer to being, uh, you know, less agile bigs. Well, you're going to get the, the, the opposite in, in, in Conte. He's going to be a really good complement to Terrace Reed defensively. He's going to be, you know, a guy that you can hedge ball screens with, maybe switchable, good length, probably 6'9", 6'10", so not the mammoth that we're used to, but mm-hmm. – Toward the end of the summer, some really promising stretches of, of perimeter shot making. Like, uh, yeah, really saw an uptick there from what I saw in April compared to what I saw in July. And the best thing about Conte is he's probably not going to be ready year one, but we don't need him to be. You right. Know, you, can, you can cook him up while Reed starts next year. And then by year three, when you need him for heavy rotational minutes, he's ready to go and wreak havoc defensively. And, and you throw in some occasional scores with dump offs and 
and maybe a you know a three off pick and pop occasionally, and that you have a really good tandem there. Does he have a lot of NBA upside, or do we get to keep this guy for a while? I think we're going to keep him. I I think if he were seven foot, you know, he would be in that that realm. But he's not quite as twitchy as a Musa Diabate at six nine, six ten. So I think we're going to keep him for three or four years. Well, that will be a welcome change. Thanks, thanks, Matt. Uh, our basketball coverage would not be the same without you, and we'll talk with you again soon. Thank you, you guys. You have a great weekend. This is Matt Demrest, the owner of Homeshare Lending. We're a local mortgage company here to help you purchase with confidence and refinance with ease. People don't get mortgages very often, so it can be confusing. We'll break down every single line item so that it all makes sense. And at the end of the day, if we're not giving you the best deal, we'll tell you to go with the other company. We're here to offer our simple mortgage guidance. This is Seth Fisher from MGO Blog. Over the years, we've sent dozens of readers to use Homeshare Lending, and every review that's come back has been raving. I myself use them to refinance after doing our original loan through our bank. I was amazed how much smoother the process was for our complicated loan. Brian used them, you should use them too. Finding out whether it makes sense or not to refinance or getting pre-approved to buy a new home is easy. Head over to homesurelending.com. That's H-O-M-E-S-U-R-E lending.com slash mgoblog to find out more. Or call us at 734-531-9950. That's 734-531-9950. I've got two of my favorite people here with me. Kind of an annual tradition. Cooper and Colby. Cooper, how old are you? 11. Colby, how about you? Nine. Can I get a Go Blue? Go Blue! NMLS number 1161358, equal housing lender. Want the perfect game day outfit? Underground Printing has unique, great-fitting U of M apparel and officially licensed apparel from legendary Michigan names like Woodson, Howard, Eufer, and more. UGP also specializes in custom printed apparel and promotional items for groups, events, and businesses. Whether you need one shirt as a gift or 1,000 shirts for a charity walk, Underground can customize almost anything for groups large or small. To learn more, visit Underground Printing in one of our three convenient locations around Ann Arbor or online at undergroundshirts.com. If you want to see where our post-game podcast happens, or if you need a spot to land in Ann Arbor, check out 4M, Prentice Partners' beautiful brand-new flagship property at 830 Henry Street in Lower Burns Park and across the bridge from the big house. Their 11 spacious six-bedroom, six-bath suites feature state-of-the-art digital capabilities and are laid out for comfortable, efficient collaboration. You can also rent a 4M unit for shorter stays, say if you want to come to town for a football weekend. I want to add myself that they're also taking over Lucky's. We're really excited about their plans for that space. So if you're by the stadium, swing by 830 Henry or visit Prentice4M.com. In southeastern Michigan, the yearly cost for a nursing home averages approximately 100000 It doesn't have to, though. Reed McCarthy founded Ann Arbor Elder Law after handling a tricky situation for his own family. Years of experience later, his boutique firm works with clients across southeast Michigan dealing with Medicaid planning, long-term care, and tax, disability, and family law, not to mention family dynamics. If you have a family member who may need that level of care, or if you're ready to start your own estate plan, Reed can give you a plan for the future. Visit AnnArborElderLaw.com or call 734-945-9693. That's 734-945-9693.
Jason, I need takes hotter than a four-year-old little girl who finds one solitary piece of carrot in her ramen for dinner. Whoa, that sounds personal. That is loses her goddamn mind. (laughs) This may have happened to me recently. That's hot. That's hot. That's going to be your hottest take. Mel Tucker is not the most overpaid coach in the Big Ten. Uh, okay. Who is that? Don't I say Ryan Day. I mean, <laughs> could anybody pilot Penn State better than James Franklin for whatever they're paying him, which is very close to I what mean, they're paying Mel Tucker? Okay. Penn State's going to go like 8-4, and 9-3 and three this year. But, sure. but could it's, anyone it's go... do that? Could anyone do that? No. 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 Could uh, Mike Riley go nine and three at Penn State? Mel Tucker go eight and four at Penn State? Uh, uh. No. 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 Yeah. No. Not always. Probably not. What? What? I mean, my point is that he he has he used to have really good coaches, and now James Franklin made Vandy pretty competitive. So that's like that's a real thing. That's the thing that he did. Okay, I mean it's a hot take, so it's it's a it's a good hot take because it's like, well, I gotta think about this, but I think my <laughs> the verdict is no. All right, all but, right, yeah. Randy, give me your hottest take. Okay, Michigan basketball come tournament time starting five will be Doug McDaniel, Jalen Llewellyn, <laughs> Jet Howard, Terrace Reed. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you had me until the last name of the four. And they're going to play small ball Yusuf Hyatt at the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> so no Hunter Dickinson. No, thank you for coming back, but we don't need you. Here's my other hot take. Can I give you my other hot take? Yes, yes. Hunter Dickinson is going to take his COVID year, stay five years, and make billions of dollars in NIL. That's possible. And we convince him to stay a fifth year. If he stays a fifth year, they may not like raise his jersey to the Raptors. They may just raise him into the Raptors. Well, so yeah. what you that's a that's a great idea because you don't have to get rid of the bow statue then. You just put the hunter statue over the bow statue, just like boom. Hunter statue swatting the bow statue. Just get that out of the kitchen. Get it out of the kitchen. I was I was going for something more subtle and, and but yeah, sure I agree. It, it'll like, cover it. Would cover it up if that kid stayed five years. He goes down as the greatest. He's going to have an awesome year this year. I I, yeah. I could not look. He's maybe my favorite Michigan basketball player. In certainly in the last like twenty five years, I, since the Fab Five, he's like my wow. favorite guy to root for because he's evil and funny and great and talented, and he steps up in big games. He's just such a good guy. I just want him here forever. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's X for me. Like I saw him in the stands for the Penn State game, and I was like, "Ooh, yeah, yeah. do a hook shot." It was amazing. <laughs> yeah, okay, <laughs> he hooked it around. Yeah, no, he's. I mean. For X in the stands, the fact that Michigan didn't call a hook and ladder is just blasphemy. <laughs> just for him. Jason, give me your hottest take. 
This basketball season, we're going to find out who Jawan Howard's favorite son is. <laughs> and it's going to be Terrence Williams. <laughs> we in. He Look, does all the I, like sun things. He does. Just, like, yeah. I, I think we are preseason as we roll into the season. I hear a lot of talk about Doug McDaniel, obviously Llewellyn. I hear some talk about Hunter and a little bit about Kobe Bufkin, but we're not talking about we're not talking about Terrence Williams, who I think was sort of morphing himself into a version of Isaiah Livers. I know that's saying a lot, but he was hitting his threes. He was rebounding. He gave us energy when we needed it. You know, I think we're sleeping on him a little bit here. Oh, we're we're like big Terrence Williams stands. Yeah, yeah I know you are, yeah, but we, in general, I'm talking outside of you guys. Okay, I'm saying we just had a in, segment where we were tripping over ourselves to say he was better. Than <laughs> Houston. No, I'm saying outside of I'm saying we as the collective, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fan base. Where do you where do you guys where do you guys have Terrence Williams playing? I mean, you can play a small ball version of him at the four, which is kind of or yeah, the four. Yeah. Like he's he's like your junk, junkyard dog rebounder guy. Right. Yep. Can play in the high post. Like has good chemistry with Dickinson. Like he's the four all the way. I think. Yeah. Jets Agreed. Also, Agreed. when his coach got into a fight, he was the one who had his dad's back. Not a. Uh, I didn't see Jason there. I didn't see Jet in there. <laughs> Good son. Jet, Jet wasn't on campus. Jet was at Iowa. Where were you, Jet? Come on. It was What's up. So, where does he live? He's in high school. Oh, he was in probably IMG. in Florida at the time, wasn't he? Yes, he, goddamn he probably son was. Right there. That's what that is. I take. Tom is always more overpaid than Mel Tucker. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> God. So at least Mel Tucker filled out his roster. Yeah. So what? So what is it about Tom Izzo as we look back on his career? Like, what is his legacy going to be? And are we just saying, man, he recruited some great players that just stepped up in a way that even he couldn't screw it up? Is that the legacy? Well, no. I mean, I think what it is is like he wasn't super well served by the way college basketball went. Because when it was like, you know, you got Mateen Cleve for four years, you have all like the Flintstone guys, and everything is like toughness and you know, basketball is officiated like it's football, except rougher. Like that was where he was great. And then when they started getting more three point oriented and freedom of movement and stuff, and then guys started leaving like that, I think he kind of had some bumps there. He's still like, I mean, like, let's be realistic. He's an all time great coach, but you know, it, it feels like his peak has definitely passed. And this year they're going into the season with essentially nine scholarship players. Um, and like they were, a, what they were like an eight last year. They're projecting it as an eight this year. I mean, I'm, I'm just going to say Imani Bates is available. I believe the charges were dropped. <laughs> I mean, if you do need to pick up another guy, we're playing him. That was, we didn't even, we didn't even bother uh, previewing. No, the, the non-conference uh, schedule <laughs> is like a like a who's who of like, oh yeah, this is awkward. Yeah, <laughs> like I, I was knocking doors for a local political candidate, and I like I opened a, one of the op- doors open, and it was a girl I made out with once twenty years ago. That's Michigan's non-conference <laughs> basketball schedule. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Frankie Collins on it. You got, uh, mm-hmm. you got. Uh, who transferred to VCU? Two guys transferred to VCU. 
Um, Johns, Brandon Johns, and Brandon Johns. Uh, Zeb Jackson transferred to VCU. Okay, you have Joey Baker, who's going to play UNC, which isn't quite playing Duke, but that's like weird. he hates him. And they there's, there's and then we got Amadi Bates at, at Eastern Michigan, Eastern. which is just like I mean, what are we doing here? And then there was there was one more. It's going to be awkward. Nance at UNC too, so we get to see that guy again. He, we, oh yeah, if he Nance is at UNC, yeah. it's just going to be like all these guys like looking at each other, being like, "Hey, I know no. you. I know you." Oh yeah, Kentucky has uh, the shooter who transferred from Iowa. Who? Oh, so, oh, um, not no. Who's the shooter from Iowa? Which McCaffrey from, are we talking about? No, it was uh, East Camp? No, no. I'm sorry, Camp Iowa players CJ, like. They last like four years. C.J. Frederick. There you go. C.J. Frederick. He's on so, Kentucky. Yeah, he's on. He transferred to Kentucky. He didn't play at all last year. So yeah. must have been hurt because he played in one game. I mean, well, huh. it's going to be awkward. It's going to be seventh yeah. day, seventh grade dance awkward. Up it's going to it's going to be curb your enthusiasm. The non conference schedule. Nothing right. better than that. Nothing better than that. Looking forward. All right, if, if you can't get enough Sklars, hit up the Nosebleeds. First episode's on YouTube, and the rest of it's on UFC Fight Pass. Hit up their Patreon. Check out their other podcast, View from the Cheap Seats or Dumb People Town. We welcome in Jamie Mack of JustCoverBlog.com. How are you doing, Jamie? I'm doing well, Brian. How are you doing today? Well, uh, I'm not doing as well as Illinois because they no. had the best bye week they could possibly have asked for. Right, exactly. They're but, big, big winners of the day by not playing. <laughs> before we get to that... We are going to do something somewhat unusual for this segment and discuss Ohio State because Ohio State played Iowa in a game that was 54 to 10 Mm. and doesn't look like that statistically. So, I mean, we usually don't talk a whole lot about Ohio State because when they beat up on someone and put up 600 yards on Rutgers, it's not interesting. We know that they're a very good team. Mm -hmm. We know that they are relatively impregnable. And we mm-hmm. know that Michigan has a big challenge at the end of the season every year. Uh, but this was an interesting game from Michigan's perspective because Ohio State puts up 54 points, but they only put up 360 yards. And by the middle of the third quarter, it was more like 160. So even though it was 33 to 10 at that point, it was more uh, Iowa's offense being terrible, turnovers, that kind of stuff. And you go and you look at the stats and, you know, CJ Stroud came out with a pretty CJ Stroud kind of day, 286 yards on Mm -hmm. 30 attempts, four touchdowns, one pick. But then you go and you look at their rushing and mine Williams picks up 19 yards on 10 carries. Trevion Henderson goes 38 on 11 and they get a total of 66 rush yards in this game. Once you account for CJ Stroud sacks, which isn't really that important, um, the sacks themselves, but Iowa's got a good defense. We saw what Iowa's rush defense looked like against Michigan. It didn't look like this. No. Yeah. And when you uh, dig into the efficiency stats, um, Ohio state coming into the game, their uh, rushing uh, success rate on offense was 59.7. That's I think tops in the nation. Well, they were only at 41% rushing success rate against the Hawkeyes after spending most of the afternoon in the mid thirties. So they had to hustle just to get, above uh above 40 percent and they had problems on on early downs they were 40 percent success rate rushing the ball on early downs that's sort of the formula Iowa wanted you know put them in third and long and and let's see what they can do but of course 
Iowa's turnover issues sort of prohibited this from being a real football game in many aspects. <laughs> yeah. So they turned the ball over six times. They lost yes. three fumbles. They threw three picks. Yes. 14 drives outside of kneel down time for Ohio state and six started in, uh, in Iowa territory because of turnovers and other general shenanigans by the Hawkeyes, which we can talk about later. <laughs> yeah. So Maybe there's a chink in the armor here just in terms of if Michigan can expect to come anywhere close to this performance against Ohio State on the ground, then you get Stroud and longer guarded situations and their receivers still do ridiculous things. I mean, I turned this game on in the third quarter and it was immediately the Marvin Harrison Jr. show. And so I sort of disgustedly flipped to the Syracuse uh, Clemson game and then was disgustedly (laughs) upset at what Syracuse was doing to blow that game. Yeah, you you and Syracuse alum Sean McDonough and all of us, all of us were disgusted <laughs> with, with that time management there by uh, Team Dino. Yeah, the first real touchdown drive that Ohio State had, I think, involved a contested catch each by, by one of their stud receivers. Yeah, very, very frustrating. But to Iowa's credit, I mean, a lot of those um, situations where Ohio State started in plus territory were early in the game their first 10 drives, Iowa only allowed one touchdown. Uh, that was, that was pretty impressive. It was just time and time again, being put in a horrible situation and almost time and time again, stepping up and forcing, forcing a field goal. Um, I would say step one to competing with Ohio state, regardless of who you are, don't put your defense in those situations the whole first half. I mean, that was almost incredible. What I was doing, it was almost as if it was on purpose. I mean, uh... And they put in Alex Padilla. That's how bad it got. Yeah. Is that he had to come in the game after they basically swore up and down that this would never happen. Mm-hmm. And then Padilla quickly proved why he hadn't been yeah. the option previously. I think we've had one discussion on the podcast previously about, you know, why aren't they going to Padilla and, and, and Seth, it's too bad he's not here. He recollected that. Well, every time they put Padilla in last year, it was a disaster. Uh, first play, fumbled snap, Ohio State ball. The next drive, I don't remember what they did on first down, but on second down, he threw a pick. So two turnovers on his first three plays. But getting back to why I think sometimes Iowa does this stuff on purpose, it's pretty much been proven that Spencer Petras cannot roll to his left, cannot move to his left, cannot do anything to his left. What do you think Iowa did on their first play from scrimmage yesterday, Brian? Uh, Could they boot him to the left? They did boot him to the left, and he found a wide-open Tanner Tanner McAllister. Guess what the problem with that is? Uh, Does Tanner McAllister play for Ohio State? He does play for Ohio State. And then how about, I think they're doing this on purpose, part two. There was a point in the game where they moved into Ohio State territory. This is in the first half still. Um, I think this was before Iowa's defense had given them a touchdown. I can't really remember. It doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter the exact chronology. It was still the first half, still a competitive game. They moved it into Buckeye territory somehow, and they faced a third and nine. And their uh, their pass protection had been so bad all game that they ran a wide receiver screen in the right side of the line who, had, who couldn't block and pass protection. Both went out, you know, to block and both whiffed, and they took a loss on a tight end screen. And Joel Clatt, rightfully so, said. Well, they're afraid of their pass protection. But on the same token, they ran that same play against Illinois for a negative loss as well, right when they crossed midfield. So it's like, it's just such a, I'm almost just speechless at this point as to what they're doing 
um, offensively from a strategic standpoint. Although some of it doesn't even matter because they're just so substandard on the line and they're so substandard at quarterback. Yeah, I mean, we've talked a lot about Iowa this year and it seems like it's just the same every time. Yeah. And it's just, it almost doesn't matter who they're playing. I mean, they got absolutely clonked by Ohio State in this game, but it's not like that was... <laughs> gonna be any different against anybody in the Big Ten. No, yeah, exactly. Um, and they're you know, they're kind of in trouble. Petrus and Padilla have a combined nine years of experience under this coaching staff, and it kind of looks like it. Um, I don't know what their options are past that. And one stat that I read a couple of weeks ago about Iowa that I have not been able to sneak on the podcast is that in as far as on their current roster because that's a little bit of an interesting caveat. On their current roster, they don't have a single offensive lineman from their 2018 or 2019 recruiting classes that is quote-unquote panned out. Now, the caveat is Lindemann was a 2018 recruit. He obviously panned out, but he's not on the roster this year. He's with the Baltimore, Baltimore Ravens. But, I mean, imagine Michigan right now, if they didn't have any offensive line contributions from the 2018 and 2019 classes. Well, that's Iowa, and that's just a program that can't afford too many years of consecutive misses like that at that, you know, in the trenches. No, I mean, we've talked about this a little bit before. It feels like the degradation of both of Iowa's lines is, is might be the death knell for the Ferentz era. And that might yeah. take another three years, but it just, it just feels really hard to see them bounce back from this. Like, are they going to get rid of Brian Ferentz? No. Are they going <clears> to <throat> have Tyler Lindenbaum again? Maybe. I mean, but, they had Alaric Jackson and uh, Tw- Tristan Wirfs as bookend tackles a few years ago, mm-hmm. and that's not happening. Yeah, right I mean, now. And they still had a lot of offensive issues back then. Yeah, and and now it's just like that without the outlier talent guys, and it's um, I don't know, it's yeah. it's real rough out there for Iowa fans. Yeah, I mean, they're I have, all tuned out right now. I have a couple more quick Iowa stats before we move on to Ohio State. Or another game. But uh, so at some point in the second quarter, their great punter, uh, Taylor, tried to run a fake punt and he didn't convert. But the four yards he gained on that run at that point represented one third of Iowa's total offense. Oh, God. (laughs) Yeah, right. And then how about um, how about the wonky expected points added for the game? Iowa's offense expected points added was minus fifty one point one three. And their two quarterbacks combined for a minus 35.5 EPA number. Okay. So how does, how does that exactly work? Cause a minus 51 sort of, what does that imply that the Ohio state offense earned three of their 54 points or <laughs> I'm not exactly sure how that works out. I think maybe Iowa has broken math. <laughs> <laughs> They've finally done it. They've broken math, you know? Um, yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't know how any of that works out. Well, oh, I mean, yeah. you, you pair this game from the Ohio, Ohio State perspective with the 21 to 10 win over Notre Dame at, to, to start the season. And then they've just had a total like run of meatballs in between. Yeah. And, you know, I think that Michigan has a reasonable chance of slowing down the Ohio State offense enough to win that game. Now, I don't think there should be favorites, but like, you know, this was an. I, I think it was a relatively encouraging game from Michigan's standpoint, just in terms of like, can this death machine be hampered? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, yesterday against Iowa, 
Ohio State only had four explosive plays, all in the passing game, none in the running. And going back to the Notre Dame game, like you referenced, they also only had four explosive plays in that day. Uh, both those games, a 6% explosive play rate, that's in the bottom quarter of the country. If, if, that, if that is your, you know, that's your typical number, that's in the bottom quarter of the country. So those are two defenses that I think Michigan's more talented than, uh, two defenses that Michigan probably has more weapons than. Um, so they can certainly corral that big play offense. And on the other on, on the other end, Michigan obviously has more on offense than Notre Dame and Iowa. I mean, no, actually, Notre Dame and Iowa are almost carbon copies, tight ends and nothing else. Right, Brian? And, and you need way more than that if you're going to stay with uh, with Ohio State. They were a little bit more efficient running the football against the Irish. Um, but if you close your eyes and remember, a lot of that is at great Mayan Williams drive at the end of that game. Yeah. We as efficient against Iowa running the football. We detailed those stats, those stats earlier. Well, let's just go over the Ohio state drives before I move on to the Penn state game sure. three and out. That's a field goal. Cause it starts at the Iowa 29. They <laughs> fumble the ball for a scoop and score for Iowa 10 play 75 yard touchdown drive three and out. That's also a field goal first down and out. That's also a field goal first down and out. That's a punt. Eight play, twenty-four yard drive. That's a field goal because it started at the Iowa thirty-two, and then you're at halftime. They throw a pick, come out at halftime. They go three and out, and then they have a four play, fifteen yard touchdown drive, and then they start getting it going a little bit. But that is a full half mm-hmm. and change of Ohio State legitimately struggling against the Iowa defense. Yeah, and. I mean- First down and outs against Ohio State, gridding against the curve. That's like a three and out, right? <laughs> Pretty <laughs> against, much. Against another offense. So. so if you look at who Michigan's played this year, what the S&P Plus says, this is still – Iowa is still the number one team in the in the nation in terms of S&P Plus defense. I don't think they're going anywhere after this game. But Michigan is eighth. And mm-hmm. Notre Dame's in the 20s. And everybody else, the best they've played is, is 33rd or something. And they're being paired with completely – terrible offenses. So I do have uh, some expectation that Michigan's defense is going to be able to slow down Ohio state stop though. Slow down. Yes. Oh yeah. Well, and they, that's what they did last year. Slowed them down, you know, several field goals and some first down and outs. And that's the, uh, that's the equation. Um, I have not had a chance to rewatch this game, but some of our favorite uh, Ohio state and Iowa uh, film hounds, whether we're talking about Ross Fulton or whether we're talking about, Hawkeye game plan noted that uh, Iowa ran a ton of cover zero yesterday and that they blitzed a lot more than usual. So, you know, maybe that's a little bit of some strategy uh, to use against them. Although the cover zero thing was weird because they were starting their drives in such good field position. I mean, isn't everything almost cover zero when you're, when you're in the defensive red zone? I mean, there really is no need for deep help in that situation, but I know that uh, Ross Fulton particularly was frustrated that they were not attacking Iowa's man-to-man and cover zero down the field. So, and they were, he was also angry that they were running the ball all the time into an unblocked hawk tackler into that cover zero. So when we watch films of this game, I think those are some things we can look out for. Yeah. And of course, Ohio state will look at that and probably adapt, but you know, oh, yeah. we'll, we'll see how it goes. Uh, the other half of the contenders, who are not Michigan in the East Penn state 45 Minnesota 17, a demolition job that got a little tighter towards the end, but was really an impressive performance for a Penn state defense that was coming off a 
complete shellacking. Mo Ibrahim goes 30 attempts, 102 yards, and really didn't get going until the game was out of hand in the fourth quarter. Mm -hmm. And for a team that gave up 400 yards rushing a week ago, uh, that's a major turnaround. Sean Clifford goes for almost 10 yards an attempt. They get a total of about 150 yards on 28 carries from their two main running backs. And, uh, you know, Minnesota has a touchdown drive at the end of the second half that momentarily threatens to make it interesting. Yeah. And then Penn State just blows the doors off in the third quarter. Yeah, that third quarter might have been the best quarter of the season for Penn State. And the the, uh, the beginning of the uh, blow your doors off phase was a sweet Parker Washington touchdown catch on third and long where he high pointed it. And that just sort of opened up the opened up the floodgates. Um yeah, Clifford was really good. Uh, according to True Media, he, he was 9 for 35 coming into this game on throws at least 15 yards downfield, but he was 6 for 9 uh, in this game. So it was a good bounce back for him. Interestingly, though, they got off to a really slow start. They struggled coming out of the gate, and after each of Penn State's first three drives, there were, there were boos from the home crowd. So that was fun to watch. <laughs> and at that point, I was torn. Do I want Penn State to keep this uh, – kind of keep this tomfoolery going because I like making fun of frames, but I kind of, was like, <laughs> I'd like to see Michigan strength of schedule, get a little bit of a boost here. You know, I'd, yeah. I'd like to see that. So I, I was torn there for a while and then they just blew them out. So, so, uh, so resoundingly in the second half that there was, there was no room for mixed emotions. <laughs> yeah. We should note that Minnesota starting quarterback Tanner Morgan was out with a concussion and, um, uh, Kalika Manis, was his uh, backup goes nine of 22, 175, one touchdown, one interception did not look on Tanner Morgan's level, obviously. So that, oh, no. that def- definitely helped out Penn state. Yeah. And you know, yeah, you mentioned earlier Ibrahim and how he got going a little bit once the game got out of hand, but he ran the ball. I thought pretty well in the first half, some of Penn state's numbers still aren't great defending the run, they still were at the 45% defensive success rate against the rush, 40 or 54% um, running uh, against on early downs as far as success rate. But they just, you know, they struggle with their passing offense with Tanner Morgan in the game. Now with this totally green backup, they were terrible. They were, they only had seven successful pass plays all game from an efficiency standpoint, and they were 19% success rate on passing downs. So they just had no no balance, and eventually, you know, eventually Penn State ate that alive. Yeah, I mean, if you're Penn State, you come into this game and you're like, Mo Ibrahim's going to get barely more than three yards of carry against us. You're going to take that and run, honestly. Yeah, absolutely. And also, given you know Penn State's history of um, turning one loss into two, I tweeted out that earlier in the week. They're thirteen and thirteen straight up in the Big Ten after a Big Ten loss. I mean, so just taking care of business, you know, and if they didn't take care of business, they're looking at a three game losing streak. So taking care of business is sort of, it's not a stat, right? It's, it's very intangible, but it goes a long way sometimes in sports. And this was definitely a taking, taking care of business game. Uh, before we move on to Penn state, Ohio state, I want to mention one Minnesota stat that's floating around the internet. You ready? Yes, sir. All right. PJ Fleck is now 39 and 26 in his 65 games at Penn state. Oh, you mean Minnesota? I'm sorry. Yeah, that's that's from the top, James. 39 to 26 in his 65 games at Minnesota. The Jerry Kill, Clays era, their final 65 games, 37 and 28. The Glenn Mason era, final 65 games, 
39 and 27. Obviously we're throwing out the uh, Tim play for brew Brewster era there, which is a disaster, but <laughs> basically I think what you're seeing is what we're always going to get out of Minnesota. I know I was really high on him earlier in the year, but you know, I mean, this is 20 years and this is pretty much, pretty much what we get until they find a game changer at the quarterback position. I don't, I, th- I think they're rowing the boat in mud. All right. So does Penn state have a whisper of a chance against Ohio state next week? Well, as far as hashtag obvious analysis, Brian, they need to get off to a much faster start than what we've seen. First, against Ohio State, I mean, I think three years in a row, either Garrett Wilson or Chris Olave has popped off a long catch and run to set them up for an easy 7-0 lead. But then specifically this season, you know, we saw last week against uh, Michigan, back-to-back three and outs to start the game, uh, sub 30% offensive success rate at halftime yesterday. They were 0 for 10 from an efficiency standpoint on their first 10 snaps from from scrimmage. They had back-to-back three and outs to start the game, and then Clifford threw a pick on the second play on their third drive. So, again, hashtag obvious analysis, but holy smokes, James, Franklin, get your team going in the first quarter in this game somehow, and then maybe you can, you know, kind of have have a go at it here. But right now I would say that they, if they don't get, if they don't, change their first quarter habits they're they're toast yeah and well i mean one thing that they do have in their favor is they probably have the best pair of corners in the league correct and their question is like can they get anybody on the interior of that defense to help out because when they played michigan michigan was just like we don't have to throw at these guys and so they didn't and that didn't matter so are they going to be able to pay off their corners against an ohio state team that goes like six deep with great receivers yeah and Will Ohio State take any of the uh, Michigan formula? Because, I, I mean, we detail that they've struggled running the football at times against Notre Dame and Iowa, but, like, I feel like if they wanted to, they could just run Henderson and, and Williams and set the game tone right from the get-go in this game. But, you know, will they, you know, will they do that? Because you know, Penn State is super undersized in the, in the run defense. There's just no way around that. Yeah, that's true. Um, but they did manage to get their blitzes right, and they're very aggressive so maybe they can hang in for a bit, but yeah, I feel like yeah. eventually the, the doors are going to come off. Well, they have the, they have the secondary talent um, more so than Iowa from a raw talent standpoint. And Iowa's secondary had some moments yesterday. So, I mean, I do think that, you know, they've got definitely a, a fighter's chance in this game. And then on offense, I am not sold on Ohio state's back seven yet. Um, their corners, there have been some injury issues, but I, I just don't know if Denzel Burke and Cameron Brown are your typical Ohio State corners. Mm-hmm. So if the pass protection can hold up, I do like Clifford and these receivers um, to maybe land some haymakers. And if they can get the tight end production that they got yesterday, seven completions, eight targets, a buck 18, two touchdowns after only nine tight end yards against Michigan. If they can find a way to replicate that, that'll be That'll be huge for them against the Buckeyes. Yeah, one thing we did mention is that Theo Johnson returned and looked healthy. Yes. Um, and he's an upgrade on Brenton Strange, and now they can use both if they so if they're so inclined. So that that'll help them out. Mm-hmm. All right, let's uh, move on to Maryland 31, Northwestern 24. No Talia Tonga Vialoa in this game. So uh it's basically ground and pound the whole time from for the Terrapins. They fall behind. Uh, going in halftime, they managed to 
pop a couple touchdowns in the third quarter and hold off Northwestern at the end of this game. Ryan Hemby goes for 179 on 24 carries with a 75-yarder. Backup quarterback Billy Edwards Jr. rushes for 66 yards and throws for 166. Some guy named Brendan Sullivan (laughs) plays quarterback for Northwestern. That's that's there's really no way, no better way to put it. Some guy. So some guy not named Ryan Olinsky. This this game was relatively competitive, but you know, once you get Tonga Vailoa out of the game, it's uh I mean, you have a totally different Maryland team to deal with. Yeah, absolutely. Um I mean, you just have to give them I know it's Northwestern and we're not giving any credit out truly for beating Northwestern, but you almost have to give some out to Maryland. You know, we talked last week about how this could possibly be a death knell for all the incremental progress Maryland's made these last couple of years, you know, without Tonga Viloa. So to be able to get this win, and now I believe they have a bye week. So maybe Talia can get healthy for November and and Maryland can maybe make things interesting. Um Hemby. You mentioned his stat line. His last carry was that 70 right, yeah. for a game-winning touchdown. Somehow, after really shutting Northwestern down for the whole second half, they kind of gave up the goose and gave up a game-tying touchdown. But Hemby, you know, Hemby won it for him on the first play from scrimmage on their next drive. Yeah, um, yeah. And then uh, Northwestern's not Northwestern Maryland's 330-pound center did a cartwheel and got flagged for it, <laughs> which. Uh, Definitely in the category of a penalty that is very much worth it. Oh, yeah. I, I stand with him for sure. I stand with him for sure. So not really a whole lot to analyze here, given that Tugavailo didn't play in this game, but it is helpful for Michigan's strength of schedule. And these days yeah. we're really looking at like the backup plan to make the playoff. Uh, so Maryland and Penn state are important teams for Michigan, especially when they play teams in the West. So yeah. it's good for Michigan's strength of schedule. Uh, uh, how viable is the, well, what, it, what, what Michigan playoff plan are you talking about? 11, one with the loss to Ohio state or yeah. 12 and one with the loss in the big 10 championship game or both. Well, so, since the 11 and one is much more probable than the 12 and one, I was right. thinking mostly about the 11 and one. All right. Well, and at, that point it pretty much requires you know tcu to lose it requires the uh pac-12 to cannibalize itself it requires clemson to lose which is why we were so frustrated at uh, syracuse yesterday and i'm just at this point i'm just assuming that the number two sec team is in so um what about what about an 11 and 2 alabama team would they get in no if if they lose to georgia in the sec title game no, they wouldn't. But at that point, you're probably looking at like what an 11 and one Tennessee team with a win over Alabama. Yeah. Yeah. That's a flying ointment, isn't it? Yeah. So what, what if, and if Tennessee, if Tennessee upsets Georgia and then beats Alabama again, then an 11 one Georgia would probably still slide in. Yeah. It's just so a lot of these, a lot of these, a lot of these hypotheticals that we're talking about still involve a second SEC team. Right. And I think that there's a not a strong possibility, but a reasonable possibility that at the end of this year, we're looking at canceling that UCLA game as a reason that we're not in the playoff. Well, so. that would, um, that would, uh, well, just come out and say it. That'll disappoint me. But part of me will be also, I told you so, because I've done, and I think you agree with me. I, I'm, I've not been in like, Oh, this schedule helps the playoffs. I'm like, I don't think this schedule is going to help. 
at all. I don't know. People are fooling themselves into thinking that that an eleven to one with with the schedule like this would 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 get them in. I, I don't I don't care that the SEC teams play an FCS team in November. I really don't. They can do whatever they want. Um, yeah, I had a feeling. Every time I complained about the schedule in the summer, I constantly got pushback about no, this helps the playoffs, and I never agreed with that. Yeah, I mean, because if you look at it, so they lose to UCLA, they're they have to beat Ohio State, right? Right, so, exactly. But if you beat Ohio, if you beat UCLA, your case at eleven and one is is much much better. So, well, just it, consider it looks, the last six weeks, the narrative of Michigan's schedule is a one eighty instead of like, oh, they played nobody. It'd be like, did you see them beat UCLA? You know. Mm. So, I mean, and the yes. narrative drives this whole sport. So, <laughs> so in the event that you win the Big Ten, it doesn't make a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the event that you have a loss in the regular season to Ohio state, your chances are much better. So yeah. I feel like uh, it's pretty, pretty apparent. It's just uh, one more thing on this. Uh, we are the world's biggest Kentucky fans this weekend. Cause they're playing Tennessee, the best scenario for no uh, second sec team is Kentucky wins. Georgia beats Tennessee. And then Alabama goes down in the championship game to Georgia mm-hmm. again. Then you had only have one one loss SEC team, and then door gets a lot more open. So Kentucky, Tennessee is going to be a big one. I think there are two possible Alabama regular season roadblocks left, though, that can't be overlooked. I know that Ole Miss looked pretty stinky yesterday, mm. but they're still going to be a tough out, I think, for Alabama. And the team that hammered Ole Miss yesterday, LSU, uh, Hosts Alabama, and it's the same day as Tennessee, Georgia, which is going to be the CBS afternoon game. So that's going to be LSU at night. And we've seen Alabama struggle on the road here these last couple seasons. So that's true. And they've had that, that's, some. That, that's that. Those games. Those games are going to be an issue, I think, for the Crimson Tide. Well, and the near miss against eight uh, Texas A&M looks terrible oh. now. Oh gosh, yeah. And right? l- like you know the 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 near miss against Texas was without Ewers. So this is doesn't doesn't look like a vintage Alabama team. And so let's no. hope we can boot these dudes out of the playoff. All right, moving back to the Big Ten. Wisconsin 35, Purdue 24 in a game that was really never close as Wisconsin mm-hmm. puts up 21 in the first quarter and then just sort of glide past their way out of there. The the stats don't look particularly impressive for Wisconsin, but you got to really consider the game state here. Also Purdue only puts up uh, Purdue only manages to put up pretty much any yards. Once the game is close to out of hand, they uh, put up touchdowns on three of their last four drives. One of those starts at the Wisconsin 21. And before that they had a couple of decent drives that ended in a field goal and a missed field goal. And in between interception, 19 yards, 30 yards, you know, pick three and out first down and out. So this is a a big bounce back for Wisconsin and particularly for their defense. Yeah. I mean, there were some, there were some decent looking uh, Purdue stats out there. Like they gained 62% of their available yards. They averaged almost 50 yards a drive, but like you detailed, a lot of that was done in the second half when they were down three scores. Uh, But Wisconsin outdid them yards per play 7.6 to 5.5. And Purdue ran 79 plays to Wisconsin's 50. 
This game was a disaster from the start for the Boilermakers. Wisconsin marched down the field on the first drive of the game and got a touchdown. And then here's how Purdue's drives went. First drive, three plays, five yards, ended in a pick six. Now you're down 14 nothing. Next drive, nine plays, 66 yards. Everything looks good. Devin Mockaby, couple nice runs, you know, but then they throw back-to-back incomplete passes and they miss a 28-yard field goal. And then the next drive, six yard, six plays, 19 yards. They punt on fourth and one near midfield. Next drive, five plays, 30 yards. Mockaby gets stuffed on third and one. And then they try to run a screen pass on fourth and three and it doesn't work. Then they finally have a 13-play, 71-yard drive that they get a 36-yard field goal out of. And then to start the second half, a three-play drive. They fumbled away on a strip sack. They gave Wisconsin first and goal. So you had the first and the sixth drive in that sequence, basically giving Wisconsin 14 points. Uh The middle four drives, Purdue had three scoring opportunities and came away with three points, one point per scoring opportunity. So I mean, you know, I know ifs and buts are candies and nuts and, and all that, but if, if one of those sequences, if you don't give those two terrible turnovers away, or if you're just a little bit better in those scoring chances, maybe you spend the second half down three to 10 points instead of down 21 points the whole time, and you can make a game of it. Otherwise, this was just more of the same. The 16th straight loss to Wisconsin, almost all these losses are blowouts. Everybody is like, oh, the Big Ten West, those teams are going to hate if we get rid of divisions, but secretly Purdue is like no more Wisconsin. Hopefully, <laughs> <laughs> All Bring right. on Penn state game says Purdue. We were fin- close in that one. <laughs> Finally, the ugliest game of the week, Rutgers 24, Indiana 17 Rutgers scrapes above 300 yards, total yards. Indiana does not. Um, neither of these teams are good. And <laughs> I don't really know if there's anything else to say. No, you know, during this broadcast, they kept showing because Rutgers was three and three throughout the whole broadcast. They kept showing the percentage of teams that make a bowl the last 20 years if they're four and three versus three and four. And it was like 75 percent to like 25 percent. So they were they were they were trying to create some stakes in this game uh, for Rutgers. So Indiana starts the game with a kickoff return for a touchdown. Awesome. And then they score on their first drive. They have a 14-0 lead. That's great. And then over the next 11 drives, Brian, Indiana uh, only gains 91 yards. Oh, my God. Right. 2.1 yards per play, which actually that that's that's higher than I thought. I, I thought that number was going to be closer to one so when, I, when, I, when I started doing the math. Their Basically, drives after a 91-yard touchdown drive, punt, 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 halftime, punt, 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 missed field goal, 19-yard drive. Interception, punt, and then a 70-yard eight-play field goal drive. Wow. Yeah. That starts with three minutes left in the fourth quarter when you're down 10 points. Yeah, yeah. Indiana's on a four-game losing streak right now, and I think they've been outscored 49-10 in the fourth quarter. And the touchdown they scored and last week and the field goal they scored this week in the fourth quarter both happened when, when they were down two scores. There was only like a minute and a half to go when they scored. They had to go to an onside kick, so... They've been really terrible in the in the fourth quarter. Yeah, another stat to illustrate how poorly Indiana did after that first drive. Basilak started the game nine for nine for 90 yards. And then over the next 10 plus drives, he went nine for 26 for 46 yards. And he threw the back-breaking game ceiling pick six in the uh in the fourth quarter. Basically, Indiana's offensive identity is the Hoosiers are punting already again, because that's pretty much 
what it is when you go three and out all the time. You you go in to top your cup of coffee off in the kitchen and you come back and you're like, Indiana's already punting again. That's there it is. That's it all day. Yeah. So they had the, the touchdown drive to start and then they managed to get eight string eight plays together on a 22 yard drive the next time out and then plays for the rest of the drives. Four, three, six, three, 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 five, two, three. Mm. And then the ceremonial field goal drive at the end of the game. So just they, they ran all those plays really fast, though, I'm sure. <laughs> That's something. Yeah, I think I think we might be done with this segment, Jamie. There's no more. There's no more to discuss. There's there's no more. Wait, we don't want to break down how Rutgers has pretty decent defensive line stats. No, they, I mean they do. They they do. They do. I'm looking forward to seeing how they hold up against Mo Ibrahim in Minnesota next week because Rutgers, if they can find a way to play a Minnesota team that's going to have one hand tied behind their back and win that game, we could be talking ball game. We'll see. Well, that is the true sickos comment of the week, Jamie. Right on. All right, brother. All right. We'll see you next week. See you, Brian. For listening to the MGO podcast, I'm Seth Fisher along with Brian Cook and Matt D from Endless Motor. I'm calling it now. Rutgers is going to be ranked ahead of Michigan State and Ken Palm this year. Better than us! No!